You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. promises great things for our town. The light is at the end of the tunnel. Welcome to Paris. It happens in hospitals all over the country, all over the world. Accident. But that's the world we live in. It's the world of the motor car. You can listen to me. Now you get this into your mind. Nobody leaves Paris. No one. Well, we get far more opportunity to do experimental work in the field of surgery and psychiatry than your city expert. This is where the really exciting work is being done. two hobbies. The past, which is manifest in these lovely old country towns like Paris. And the future, which lies with our youth. I got this one. This one's mine. You sluts. You irreligious Daddy, daddy. All right, well, have, uh, have you country boys forgotten the old school war cry? Have you? <laughs> have you forgotten the meaning of those words? Woomera, woomera, babaloo, boomerang, crocodile, kookaburra, wombat, orangutan, wee-ho, way-ho, taramanga mine, condong, billabong, gunderbluey pine, platypus, emu, wallaby, roo, ivers, frolgar, white cockatoo, leaves Paris. No one. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Howdy, folks. Also with us this week is Mr. Ben Buckingham. G'day. This week we're looking at the 1974 film from director Peter Weir, The Cars That Ate Paris. 
The film stars Terry Camilleri as Arthur Waldo, a man whose brother dies in an auto accident outside of Paris, Australia, a strange little town and something of a microcosm. There's a rift between the elders of Paris and the reckless automobile-obsessed youth. Arthur plays something of a catalyst for their major changes in Paris. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Cars That Ate Paris, I recommend you go track down a copy and come back after you've seen the film. We will still be here. Now, Ben, when was the first time that you saw The Cars That Ate Paris, and what did you think? Uh, The first time I saw it was probably about 10 years ago, and I remembered it not really doing a huge amount for me, and I don't even remember when I saw it, how I saw it, anything. It wasn't a film that was really uh, readily available on video in Australia. And then about a year ago, um, the we have an online, uh, one of the TV stations has an you know, on-demand service that's free and they have a lot of Australian content in there and it popped up randomly. And I thought, ah, oh, got an evening to waste. I'll chuck this on and watch it again and just was completely floored by it this time and got so much more out of it and um, since then have been madly trying to catch up on Peter Weir films because I think most of his films, they the first time kind of <laughs> drifts into your subconscious and the second time it really starts to jump around and make sense. How about you, Kevin? I first saw the film around 82, 83. Uh, I was working at an art theatre as a ticket taker and projectionist and Weir's uh, Gallipoli last wave picnic and hanging rock and particularly year of living dangerously had been huge, huge hits for us at the theater. And so new line broke out of mothballs, their old prints, 10 year, almost 10 year old prints of the cars that eat people and started booking those into midnight slots at the same theaters that were showing Weir's more high profile uh, films that were more current. So I would have seen it at a midnight screening probably on a Thursday night somewhere in 82 or 83. And I thought it was just the biggest piece of shit I'd ever seen. I I couldn't believe that a film like that had been uh, released. I understand how films like that get made. Um, and of course, in the last couple of years, having seen it in its full-length version, it just blows me away. It's sort of like a dystopian version of Local Hero or something. I think it's one of the really great films that has that little thumbnail sketch of this, as you said in the intro, of this microcosm. My first encounter with the film was nothing like the way that it has been integrated into my movie-going life right now. You talked about it being called The Cars That Eat People, and we will definitely be talking about some of the differences between that short version and the uh, full-length version. The short version on IMDb, it's listed at 74 minutes, and the VHS copy that I recently purchased for an exorbitant amount of money, the only way I was able to find a copy of The Cars That Eat People was via buying it on Amazon from a, a VHS dealer. That barely breaks 60 minutes so i'm not sure if there were multiple truncated versions or if there was just the one and maybe people misremember how long it was i mean i don't really trust the running times on imdb i don't trust a lot of things on imdb but running times is definitely one of those especially when you start talking about you know pal versus ntsc versus ccam and those kind of things and transfer rates but Yes, 74 minutes is a lot longer than what we saw with the Cars That Eat People with this uh, version that I sent to you guys. Wow. 
uh, I can imagine why you would hate the cars that eat people because it is just hacked to pieces. I wonder if maybe as for VHS release just to cut costs, they maybe cut it down even further to fit it on a 60 minute tape because that did happen sometimes. Almost the entire second half of the second act is just gone. And that's most of the social satire. That's where some major things happen. We'll definitely be talking about that. I saw the cars that ate Paris. I think I saw the full version the first time, though I can't say I remember that opening with that kind of weird, like, beer and cigarette ad that happens on there. And Coca-Cola. And (laughs) Coca-Cola. I don't seem to remember that part, but the rest of the film felt very much like what I had remembered seeing probably I want to say like mid 90s something like that and it just really took me by surprise because I had seen a few Peter Weir films here and there Truman Show and Mosquito Coast these kind of things but never had I seen anything quite like this and the thing that I like about it is it just feels very I don't know, very kind of dreamlike to me. It just feels like it, it operates by its own logic. And I love the use of the music. I love the way that the film looks. And again, that's one of the problems with the cars that eat people is that, uh, at least the VHS version, it is uh, pan and scan. So you're missing that beautiful cinematography because this movie looks fantastic. It's quite uh, a surprise, actually, because this was the first uh, locally produced CinemaScope production. So nobody involved had had any experience working with that kind of scale of image. And most of them came from a TV background, which you know is quite the opposite. A 60-minute film would be three 35-millimeter reels. And I would remember if I had projected a film that was that short, even X-rated programmers would be four reels. So the 60 minute version was almost certainly not the version that would have been in distribution by new line in theaters. I just can't imagine them being able to get a booking for a 60 minute film. I, I just can't, I can't see it. I mean, it does feel like on the VHS, there's a real missing, but at the same time, there are other changes like there's moving parts of the end towards the beginning there is um just even like small little bits of scenes are being chopped out so they're really just kind of taking each scene and truncating little bits of it as we go through and then also the other big difference is that we have changed arthur waldo our hero from being a australian to being someone from brooklyn new york so he is completely dubbed over by this guy with a horrible faux brooklyn accent and it is just it's it's kind of hilarious especially if you're familiar with camilleri's performance and he's just very you know meek and quiet the way that he speaks and then you have this hey i'm from brooklyn kind of guy that's overdubbing him i think they they uh overdub john melian as well but that's not nearly as noticeable but yeah and then camilleri they actually add lines to him when he's not on screen and they're showing the other characters, he will say more things in the uh, Eight People version than the Eat Paris version. It is just, uh, as I was watching both of them side by side the other night, and they would continuously fall out of sync because it would be like, oh, yeah, missing a bit here, missing a bit there. But then to hear that horrible Brooklyn accent that he's doing, oh, God, it just 
really, I mean, they, they just destroyed that film. So if people have seen only the cars that eat people, forget about it and go back and watch the cars that ate Paris because it is, it's a completely different experience. He sounds like Joe D'Alessandro in the Paul Morrissey, <laughs> Frankenstein, and Dracula films. That out of place. I'm tired of you two tramps. What about your sister? What does she do all night? I like to rape the hell out of her. The, the last line, um, I couldn't bring myself to watch it. I just cannot do those American dubs of Australian film versions. They're too grating. But I looked at that, the, the PeterWeirCave.com, with the, the, got the quotes of the what he says, and, and that final bit where it's like... So that's the end of my story. Incredible, huh? A whole town living off car crashes. My brother George is dead and buried in Paris. But I can drive again. You win some, you lose some, right? I'll tell you one thing, though. I'm getting the first plane out of this crazy country. It's goodbye, Australia. Brooklyn, here I come. Oh, <laughs> so bad. <laughs> well just that opening where he's it's a flash yeah the whole movie is told in flashback he's driving along he's like you won't believe it but i just escaped from paris it's the weirdest place i ever been that's paris australia i'm talking about not paris france and i'll tell you i'm never going back as long as i live i mean what happened in that place wow i mean i can't believe it I can't stand like it's it's a hard thing to pull off is a film that starts at its ending and when they just do it for no reason you're automatically like behind the eight ball. I always admired the hucksterism and chutzpah of New Line Cinema in in those years. Their their ultimate scam and it was a beautiful thing was releasing. Jean-Luc Godard's One Plus One and promoted it at, promoting it as a Rolling Stones concert film. Oh my God. I've seen uh, One Plus One and yeah, <laughs> definitely not. The, my favorite scene in that film is Mick Jagger with headphones on sitting quiet and still in a recording studio for five minutes and then... He leans forward into the microphone and goes, <laughs> and that's the scene, him dubbing that one track of the backing vocals. So, so good on you, Robert Shea. In the notes, you were talking about some of the other uh, shortened and mutilated international releases. I mean, we've covered uh, Possession on this show before and talked about how horrible the American version of that was. I mean, that just changes so many things as well. I think that a lot of companies were probably acquiring these films for home video and their their theatrical releases were just pro forma. You know, they would get them out just for a few play dates so they could say that, you know, it was a real movie. Uh, but yeah, Possession is, is massively mutilated. That's, it's just, it's almost incoherent. And, you know, the original story was hardly a sort of linear classic three act film. Uh, also I think Argento's phenomena was mutilated and released as creepers. Do you know the story about that? Or was it rescored? Well, I can't remember the version that circulated. That's not considered the canonic version of that. 
Yeah, I haven't picked that one up from Synapse. I know that they just did a whole restoration of Phenomenon. Plus, I think they redid the Creepers version with that footage. Because just the, the footage from the Creepers version was so degraded from the original Phenomenon version that they actually remastered the at least the visuals. But I don't know what the story was with the audio. So they restored the butchered version. Now that's completism. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Don May knows what he's doing over there. Creepers was the version that we got in Australia on video, and I probably saw it when I was about 14 or so, but I have no memory of what it was like. I remember not enjoying it, though, but it was one of those really badly done VHS where just everything was just black all the time. You couldn't tell what was going on. But uh, I think Synapse did, was it Synapse or Severin who did um, Dr. Butcher MD recently, which is the re-edit of Zombie Holocaust, which they cut out, I think, about half an hour of Zombie Holocaust, the Italian exploitation film, and shot some extra footage and released it as Dr. Butcher, MD, Medical Deviant. That's that's another case, but that was, that was they actually put extra stuff in, just, a, entirely, just about an entirely different film. Well, let's talk about the cars that ate Paris. So I talked about that kind of strange ad that begins uh the film now ben am i correct in thinking that that was kind of a parody of something that we might have seen on, in an australian maybe movie theater at that time oh absolutely this this was pure australiana of the the late 60s and 70s it's, this just I, I haven't seen so many of the adverts that it is taking off but it instantly reminded me of seeing old cigarette adverts in the back of magazines and things like that it's that exact slightly pastoral look where it's the you know very much playing on the australian landscape and people you know enjoying frivolity in it it's apparently at the time in australia it was common for the adverts to run straight up to the film and there wouldn't really be any kind of signifier that the film had started so peter weir very deliberately put this in to kind of pull the rug out from underneath the audience so they thought they were this was just the adverts continuing. Well, it was nice that it the advert kind of ends with a car crash, so it really kind of sets up the rest of the film. Yeah, well, it very much it it, it plays as a, as a kind of coda to the film because even though it's obviously not connected to the scenario, it, it puts forward this kind of the ideal versus the reality. Uh, you've got this fantasy yeah. life of the day in the park and, you know, having fun and everything. But I love that sh- that little single shot of the Coke can getting stuck under the brake. <laughs> it's such a great, like, it sort of poke at our kind of obsession with, especially at that time with, you know, we had a lot of um, Americans flooding into Australia in the mid to late 60s because of the Vietnam War. And they brought a lot of American culture with them, which was, you know, the Coca-Cola, et cetera. So it was, I think, definitely um, a, a very directed jab. Yeah, I've never seen anything like that to start off a film. And it, it, so I was it always just kind of throws me when it starts. But it, it works so well for it. I'm sure we'll get into the film's remarkable similarities and many motifs and themes with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But this idea of middle class people driving across the landscape that to them is a landscape of consumption and leisure and then being overwhelmed and destroyed by this upswelling of these deeply repressed primitive forces is one of the major themes of the film. And so we get a sort of preview of it in that sense, in that little, all the visual motifs and some of the themes that are introduced in that, in that great advert parody at the beginning because quickly after that we're kind of thrust into the narrative proper 
which has Arthur and his brother George, and they're driving along. Well, I should say George is driving along, and Arthur is the passenger. And they're on this road trip, and we see them stop off places, and it just is very you know, leisurely paced, which I appreciate. And we are kind of getting their relationship, though we definitely can sense, at least it feels to me, that there is a, a strain between these two guys, which we will explore in the rest of the film, because it's within a matter of, what, 10 minutes that we have the other auto accident that is going to really start the story proper after George makes a turn at Paris and then quickly is startled out of his wits. He's driving his, his caravan and there's all of a sudden these bright lights and uh, at least in the Garcetti people version, this lion roar that happens <laughs> and he, he goes tumbling off the side of the road and that's what really starts the story because the rest of the film is going to take place in and around Paris, Australia. Something that's hard to notice the first time you see the film, at least it was for me, and I'm talking about the real film, let's just set the early 80s screening of the cars that eat people aside, is while we have this introduction of the characters and the establishing that they're driving further and further away from these urban areas, uh, we also have on the periphery of the image these newspaper headlines about what seems to be political and economic strife that is occurring in the centers of power and commerce of Australia and that we will feel the ripples of as the film goes on. But it's handled in a very soft, off-handed way. I made a note of that shot the, with the headlines of the newspapers, and that's the point at which directed by Peter Weir can, comes up, wedged between those headlines and newspapers. And there's a lot about this film, and going across a lot of Peter Weir's work, uh, is very prescient and... In Australia at the moment uh, is perhaps as vital and on point uh, now as it was then, perhaps more so. Um, a lot of those newspaper headlines sound a lot like headlines that are still going on today. Um, we're in quite a bit of political turmoil and social strife at the moment, and a lot of the uh, traditional social structures that Australians have looked towards and relied on are steadily disintegrating. Um, so the film feels it feels very, very real right now. Yeah, it's, it's it's that kind of transient lifestyle as well, where you're seeing this sort of the the point at which modernity is starting to really disrupt Australian uh, lifestyles and forcing people into you know travelling from town to town to find work and queuing up at employment. Uh, lines and getting turned away because they just there isn't that stability anymore. The, the families and businesses are all kind of breaking down and closing down. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of our American brethren realize just that. You know, it's not just the U.S. that is crumbling apart right now. You know, we we've heard a lot about Brexit, but unfortunately, Australia really doesn't come across our radar too often here in the states. But Things are tough all over, to uh, coin a phrase. I mean, you guys are having your kind of shitstorm at the exact same that we are, the exact same time we are. 
Yeah, well, most people don't realize that we actually voted in our version of Trump earlier than you did. And uh, he's already been doing a lot of the same kind of horrendous stuff, uh, imprisoning refugees that come by boat on uh, foreign lands and pretending that they're not our problem and shutting down Social Security and trying to punish the poor while giving t- tax breaks to the rich. So it's what we're seeing a reflection of what has already started here and this film as i said when i watched it last year it just felt like watching a completely different film because the film didn't seem surreal anymore <laughs> it seemed like it was really tapping into a lot of um socio-cultural fears that were very prevalent at the time it was made but unfortunately australia hasn't managed to shake itself free from yet the thing that i like about this movie is that those headlines are as you said kevin they're off to the side you know it's not like this is so in your face. I mean, it's something that to Ben's point, as he's watching it, he's seeing this stuff and, and, you know, saying, Oh wow, how prescient. And, and yes, it reflected the time, but also it's, it's of this time too, but it's not like it's right there in your face. And I think that's one of the reasons why people might miss some of the social satire that's going on in here is that it's not, you know, this isn't airplane style social satire. This isn't uh, uh starship troopers. You know, this is, very quiet and that's one of the things i like about it is just how quiet this movie is and it just kind of moves at its own pace and does its own thing yes you have these uh hot rods tearing ass around town and stuff but it's not like the rest of it is is uh just like slamming you over and over like see look at what's happening in the world it tells such a nice little story that you can kind of lose that other part but it's always there right the Social satire in the following years, Death Race 2000, is quite insistent and bludgeoning. Not that it's not a wonderful film. Bartel was a, a fantastic filmmaker, and Corman was always a very, very cagey producer in knowing how to introduce these topical and satirical elements into the film. But certainly it's quite muted in Cars That Ate Paris. Later in the film, we get more of this stuff but it's kind of piggybacked on the revelation that the only radios that the town has are the radios that they've stripped out of the cars. And so it would be very, very easy to watch the film and notice in those scenes only that crucial piece of mise-en-scene that this town is so isolated and so cut off that they don't have any kind of access to broadcast media except for the AM car radios that they've stripped out of these post-accident uh, vehicles. Right, because the entire town, their industry, quote-unquote, is the ripping apart of these cars. They're basically, it's their whole town industry is being a chop shop, basically. So they will cause accidents to happen on the outskirts of town, take those vehicles, chop them up, take what people want and you know there's a whole power structure to the city of paris you know who gets to choose what from the cars you know the mayor is the one who goes over and grabs the radio and sticks it under his coat uh you know the uh the character charlie who we'll talk about he's all about the hood ornaments and there's this whole thing where people will take their different parts of these cars and then they light them on fire, and then eventually throw the carcasses out into this huge auto graveyard that they have. But there's a great montage, probably right around the middle of the film, where we see 
you know, people, uh, you know, pounding out the hoods and like the blacksmith working. It, it, it feels very much to me. And I, I say this a lot during the interviews later on, this movie reminds me a lot of a Western in the, you know, you don't see blacksmiths too often in too many other films, but here we have this blacksmith working on some of the metal stripped from one of the cars. So it's just amazing how they use that. And then they also, I can't say they necessarily use the people. They definitely use Arthur, who's one of the rare survivors, but the rest of the people who survived these car crashes are in different states of disrepair, and that's where the doctor comes in, the doctor of the town. Dr. Midland. Yes, who will uh, experiment on these people and basically has created almost like a little mini army of zombies. You know, he has these these people that the uh, the hospital intern calls veggies. You've got your your full veg, your half veg, your quarter veg, and then he even talks to Arthur at one point about you know how he would make a great veg. It's just, uh, you know, th- there are so many different elements going on. And that intern or the hospital worker, he really is there to represent the youth of the city because a lot of these people are relatively faceless, but he's the guy who we really take as the leader of the youth. So we've got the leader of the elders with the mayor and the leader of the youth with this hospital worker. And then the rest of the film is kind of how they get along or don't get along. The youth who works at the hospital, I can't remember his name. Daryl. Um, Daryl. Uh, Daryl kind of is almost like he's transitioning. Like he's, he's kind of got a foot in both worlds. So it's almost like as he's moving out of being a youth into becoming an adult so that he's sort of caught between the two worlds and trying to negotiate both of them. And I wonder if that was, I think there's a couple of characters. I think the police officer is another one who is kind of caught between two worlds that he's, the way he dresses is more like the youths, but he's very much in the, the adult world and that, the Western element definitely comes in very strongly when the youths are present and the police officer at the fancy dress party at the ball dresses like a movie cowboy. And it's, it's very much feels like there's, there's a couple of characters who are caught in these kind of weird positions where they haven't quite stabilized into the family or the business mode yet. Well, also there's no currency in the town. It's all barter that the people take these parts and then they take them to a store or another person and they exchange them for food and so when daryl takes the main character into the hospital and shows him around they sit down in what looks like a sort of employee lounge area and on the table behind daryl is a polished fender and cans of beans cans of green beans and so that that there's there's no currency there they've we talk about the western they're they're a, they're an almost pre mercantile economy and culture that they're 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 literally kind of in the in the wild west it's interesting uh, you say that because I know that at this time the the Australian film industry in its new wave mode was still forming and this is one of the very early films in it and it, it was the first film to gain international attention uh, most of the films beforehand had only been local hits and were the kind of bawdy sex comedies that the locals didn't uh, particularly want to travel so they weren't seen internationally a lot uh, but the films that would come after this would very much have a an a national identity focus and a lot of them would lionize the 
the rural people and the people of the land and the kind of foundations of Australian uh, modern white Australian culture, um, things like Sunday Too Far Away with the sheep shearers. Um, and so I think it's interesting that this is kind of it's it's not commenting on that because that, that at least in cinema has not come into focus yet, but it feels like it's preparing for that um, and already showing the kind of bullshit that that illustrates. Um, and it's also interesting that it focuses on the, as you said, on the blacksmith as well and that kind of day-in-the-life montage that it, this is, you know, you'd see that kind of montage in a lot of Australian films where they say, you know, oh, look at the wonderful, you know, country lifestyle. Well, I think this is where the Western motifs come in because Hollywood has already gone through this cycle of transformation of the Western, uh, whereby the the late 60s and the early 70s, we've seen several years of revisionist Westerns that, that point out the racist, genocidal dimension of what Americans used to call the frontier days. And so by incorporating some of those generic elements, Weir can take them almost as pre-established building blocks, sort of prefab walls and stuff, and and erect this social satire in full awareness that this white nostalgia for the pioneer spirit is subject to this sort of scabrous and scalding satire. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the Westerns were hugely popular here. You know, there were a number of uh, American Westerns made, very low-budget American Westerns made in Australia. It was, I hesitate to use the word co-production because there wasn't much on our side um, in the 40s and 50s, I believe it was. And quite a few of the Chips Rafferty films used the Western mold. And I know my dad as a kid back in the, the 50s would uh, always go to the movies and watch the matinee Westerns as a kid. So there, there, there's some – it's it's definitely a big part of our culture of things. Something you can see it even now in films like the proposition and the Rover and even uh, the dressmaker. If you saw that, that utilized a lot of uh, Western elements. Well, and you were talking about the whole pioneer thing and that is what the mayor is all about. The mayor was played by John Malon, who for a lot of people was kind of one of the major faces of Australian cinema. A lot of people will know him. We talked about Wake and Fright and Sunstruck, uh, I think last year, the year before, uh, Walkabout. He was the father of Walkabout. And of course, you know, he would go on to be in the Crocodile Dundee film. So a lot of people know him from those, but his character is so interesting to me because he is just all about those pioneer days and the way that, you know, he has this meeting to talk about, you know, the pioneer spirit and they're going to have this pioneer ball. And that again is, you know, where a lot of things culminate. And then the pioneer ball is a costume ball. I know I'm jumping way ahead in the movie, but I did want to ask uh, Ben while I'm thinking of it. To me, he looks like kind of like a low rent Abraham Lincoln in that costume ball. Is that kind of what you're thinking with that costume? Possibly. Um, I think that is what he's going for. He doesn't strike me as he's not very recognizable as an Australian figure. Um, there's nothing in particular that, that leaps out. So I think there is definitely that aspect to it. And the, I think that part of the thing that would support that is the you see the, the USA poster in the police station earlier on. 
Um, yes, it's, it's Disneyland, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's USA at the top, and it's got the red strips running down into a picture of Mickey Mouse and the family at Disneyland, and it, it looks it's clearly homemade. And it looks vaguely like a propaganda poster with the way that the red strips, you can kind of see the sort of jagged edges around them as they're being painted on. And so there's like that, there's kind of that hidden in the background that that American worship, which, as I said, was developing very strongly at the time. So I, I think it's entirely plausible to say that, yes, he is aping Abraham Lincoln. Well, there's that great scene right after the funeral where we introduce the town elders, and it's one of those classic scenes there's a great scene uh with eg marshall in the uh, arthur penn film the chase where they have this this similar scene where the the mayor gets out this model prototype of their aspirations for this just shitty worthless little town that they live in and of course in this film uh it's like a child's diorama you know, it's just little pieces of folded notebook paper sort of vaguely made to look like a sort of prototype model that that a, an architecture or architect or a city planner would use. And then they talk about uh, uh, the use of certain architectural motifs that in this newly constructed town and that the the columns would work better on the museum and, and all of this other stuff. And then they talk about progress on the development campaign there's a poster somewhere and of course this is all just fantasy i mean these people are descending into complete barbarism and and by barbarism i'm certainly not referring to the aboriginal peoples the maori and and other groups who were quite civilized certainly more civilized than the uncouth white invaders but we can see them descending into this sort of bestial dimension in the final confrontation with the drivers which i'm sure we'll we'll talk about later just thinking about the Aboriginal aspect, I should just point out um, that the Maori cultures are specifically New Zealand, not Australia. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I, okay. Okay. Uh, I'm so sorry. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's it, if it's all very very most Americans I've spoken to get New Zealand and Australian stuff confused quite regularly. Uh, a oh. friend of mine was telling me he read the script for Arrival which if you've seen knows has a fair bit of Australian component in it. Apparently in the original script, there's even more stuff to do with Australia and the screenwriter clearly does not realize that New Zealand is not part of Australia and talks about it as if the Maori people in Australia. So yeah, don't worry about it. (laughs) It's pretty common mistake. At least I don't call them the Maori like some Americans. <laughs> well, I, Americans do struggle with our Australian New Zealand pronunciation. It is, it's the, the New Zealand is especially difficult. But uh, I, I was thinking about um, there's a lot of Aboriginal rights issues are still very raw in Australia. In New Zealand, with the Maori culture, they've they've come to a bit more of a uh, understanding and um, developed stronger uh, connections. And, and I visited New Zealand recently and was quite amazed at, at how strong the bonds were, um, that even to the point where everywhere I went, um, in like museums and such, every, and art galleries, everything was in Maori and in English, and the Maori was before the English most of the time. Um, and that just does not happen in Australia. But a, a problem that we have in Australia with reaching a point like that is that the Aboriginal peoples are quite diverse. There were just thousands of different languages spoken in this country because there were so many different distinct tribes and groups. Trying to sort of address that is a lot more 
difficult, especially considering some of our political behaviours, past and present. But it did. It does strike me that the only time Aboriginals appear in this film is through a representation, which is the highly racist statue that uh, the gnome-like statue that the mayor has in his front yard, which the youth breaks in two. Yeah, he breaks in two, and and the mayor gets very upset about which possibly ties into some sort of Abraham Lincoln thing of feeling that he, you know, some sort of connection to this, that he has to protect it or something. I'm not sure. It's it's an interesting reaction that he has to it. That particular imagery of an Aboriginal in white Australian culture was referred to as a gollywog uh, in the past, which is a very, very nasty racist term, um, and that you don't often see those anymore. They've pretty been pretty much been erased from our culture fortunately so it's it's a really that the, that particular image of an aboriginal is severely loaded and very negative we have a similar tradition of racist african-esque garden gnomes in the u.s uh in some cases it's a, a lamp lighter figure but there's an almost one-to-one correspondence in the nature of the social satire in that moment in Cars That Ate Paris and the way that that would function in a contemporary American film, I think. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, definitely. Um, of course, I follow the, uh, we've got the Jim Crow Museum here in, in Michigan. And uh, so they are often posting like little uh, things from our past just to remind us how horrible things were. So I was reminded a lot of like the Aunt Jemima type figures, you know, uh, the uh, Piccaninnies, and then even to the point of just the uh, the little the, the little lawn jockeys. I think it's it's very uh, appropriate that they're they're absent from this because Australia um, has successfully pushed the Aboriginals out of mainstream culture. Um, they're they're only now just kind just starting to get a foot back in uh, through things like the TV series Clever Man, um, and you know just by jumping up and down and carrying on. But because they Australia is so large and a lot of the Aboriginal uh, centres that are left are in remote locations in the cities, you know, you, there's, what was it, in, in Peter Weir's The Last Wave, the the wife says, you know, I believe I'm a fourth-generation Australian and I've never met an Aboriginal. And I would tell you that that is probably still quite common in this country to this day. Kevin, you mentioned that diorama, and as you did, I was reminded of that little model that the sheriff is using to show how Arthur's car crashed at the beginning, which is just a a strange little moment where it's like cut from the car crash to him. Like basically he's traveling at an unsafe speed, these old country roads, a dark night, probably had a few beers with his evening meal. Yeah. Consequently fails to take the bend towing a heavy caravan over it goes both killed instantly I don't know people never seem to learn do they gotta go that bit faster oh well I thought I'd call out and check personally and what about the car anything salvageable virtually exploded burned right out you can see the wreck if you like oh no no that won't be necessary that's the only outside figure, I think, is the person he's explaining that to seems to be an authority from outside of the town who is just kind of investigating this. Is that what you guys were gathering from that same scene? I think he's yeah. an insurance claims adjuster. Ah. But he's not the only outsider because it appears the reverend isn't part of the community either. 
Definitely. Yeah, that reverend causes a lot of problems in town. <laughs> the reverend is one of those people to me that has their foot in each side of the culture here where he is kind of hip and everything. He's got like the slicked back hair. He reminds me of the youth culture. He's got the little, uh, the little funky car compared to the mayor who's got the car with the huge fins on it. And so he seems like he's appealing to the older people by being the man of God, but then also trying to appeal to the youth. And it's funny when we're seeing one of the scenes in church, we're almost, we're cross cutting between him in church and talking to the elders versus the youth who are out just tearing ass around town and shooting their cars over one another and, and, you know, flipping them over and just, I mean, it's, it's just mass anarchy out there. They're just going crazy with these cars. And it's uh, an interesting juxtaposition going between the two sets of what we're seeing with this. And, you know, poor Arthur Waldo, I, we barely have even talked about Arthur Waldo, and I described him in the opening as a catalyst, because that's kind of what he is. He, he's one of these things that is, I can't say he's unchanged, because a proper catalyst is, is unchanged by the surroundings, but he, the only real change for him is that he gets the confidence to drive uh, in the film. And the rest of it, though, is he basically is being used by the mayor. He's being treated like a, a youth by the mayor. He's basically in, almost infantilized a lot of times. It just as this, he's not a, a young man, or at least he doesn't look like a young man, but people are treating him like he's much younger than he is. And then they thrust this position of power upon him with this black armband that he so proudly wears, and they Basically, they make him the new sheriff in town. He's the guy who's supposed to be handling the parking situation, which in a town like Paris is probably a major job, but he isn't able to handle it very well. Well, that's the setup for the amazing scene that's the homage to Once Upon a Time in the West and his standing off against them and then the the younger sheriff figure, uh, comes in the younger police officer figure comes in and has to intercede on his behalf. Uh, the the other thing uh, about uh, Arthur that I was surprised about was they begin to suggest that there might be an affair in the making between Arthur and the mayor's wife Beth, but that kind of doesn't go anywhere because both of them lack the confidence and the ability to read people that would make any kind of assignation possible. But that business about I'm wearing the fur around the house because I thought it would put you in a better mood. That that reminded me of the the brief affair in Wake and Fright that he the, the trysts that he has in the night with oh, I can't remember the character. Um, but yeah, you know the the, the situation I'm, I'm speaking of, and I, I, th- I think there is something to that of the the, the stranger who the, the old cliche of the stranger who comes in and has the affair with the wife, and would definitely been have been common in melodramas of the period. I was really reminded of High Plains Drifter with that. And now, obviously, Arthur Waldo is not like Clint Eastwood coming in and raping the one woman who, quote unquote, deserves to be raped in the film. You know, no one ever deserves, but that's the character, how she's pre- presented. Arthur Waldo is completely the opposite from Clint Eastwood. So it's it's interesting that he's put into that role, but he has none of the trappings of Clint Eastwood. 
Right, or and the postman also, always rings twice, something like that. Yeah. There's also that the the she's I think she's she's the only significant female character in the film. That the it, her role is one of the the significant female characters. That every point where you think her life is going to change path, it doesn't. You know that she doesn't have an affair. That she doesn't break free at the end when she seems like she's going to take the kids and go. She doesn't. She just goes and gets in the car. Um, and it's like it's. I think that is also a comment on the role of women in Australian white Australian culture. The two kids are female, but they appear to be on the road to a life that's virtually identical to Beth's. Yeah, which is exactly how Australian culture has gone for many years. Of that, just that's replicating across the generations. There's that weird moment where they're having dinner together and uh, the one uh, little girl takes her hair and puts it behind her ears and the mother has to correct her to put her hair uh, in front of the ears. That one was just – it always strikes me as so odd. It's, it's because, I would say that's because she has a massive scar on the side of her face, which seems to suggest that she was a victim of one of the car crashes that survived. So by that implication, they've adopted children before, and so the mayor seems to be adopting uh, Arthur as well. Right. Yeah, having that conversation with him about how he wants Arthur to be his son. And the one thing that people who are family don't do is they don't go to outsiders. It's He's using that adoption to basically stop Arthur from talking to the Reverend. Because, as you said, the Reverend is an outsider. And we don't want to talk to the outsiders. Arthur definitely sees that something odd is going on. And to me, I love that he really gets that moment of oddness when he's kind of wandering around town and he runs into Charlie, the Bruce Spence character who I said we would talk about. And Charlie is there with the collection of all of the Jaguar hood ornaments that he's taken before. And it's got to be just an, an incredible amount of cars that have come through this town and crashed for him to have all of these particular one particular set of hood ornaments and him there with those jaguars over his head and he's kind of like uh, you know uh, imitating them with his mouth and everything and just roaring a little bit and it's just like wow so that's the moment i think when arthur realizes there is something really wrong here there have been way too many auto accidents and that's when he wants to talk to the reverend and when he makes that move to talk to him that's when the mayor steps in and is just like no no we're, we're going to do this hey you're going to be my son and you're not going to talk to any of these outsiders we're going to continue on you know things are so fragile in this ecosystem of paris that he's going to do whatever it takes to keep on keeping on because obviously the mayor wants to stay in power and wants to continue being in power and, and holding on to the fragility of the town. Well, the mayor himself is unstuck in time. He's costumed and coiffed exactly like a pauperized middle-class Brit from either the war years or the uh, the decimated post-war years they're they're just the the sweaters that he wears his bearing the scene where he's sitting in the armchair with the paper and the pipe i guess ben a question i have for you the muddying up of australian and british national identity that we see in the film you know daryl speaks 
from what I can tell, with a London accent, uh, the same accent that the Droogs speak with in Clockwork Orange. And and there are these elements, I would argue, in the in the mayor's bearing and costuming and stuff. If you look at some of the like some of the Archer's post-war films, like that's like a classic sort of like middle class creepy guy in one of their films. Is there anything in there that we're missing? You know, there's the picture of the queen on the wall and, and things like that. Yeah, it's we definitely uh, even now we still we we pretend like we don't, but we're still a Commonwealth country. The Queen is still technically the head of our country. Um, she has no power at all over Australia, but she's still technically in charge. We've always lived in that shadow. I think because we've jumped in with America since the 70s, that's lessened a lot, but the dominant uh, culture was English culture. The dominant import was British entertainment. Uh, we, My mother was a... a English immigrant, she was what was known as a five pound pom when they had this deal that for five pounds you could get a boat and get uh, citizenship in Australia during the 50s. And so you had this huge influx of uh, poms coming in, English people, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, even myself growing up, I, that I don't have a very strong Australian accent compared to some because. I grew up watching all of the English programs on TV when I was a kid because of my mum and my grandparents. So we definitely have – that's only started to wash away during the 70s, when I think when we started to, A, import more American culture and, B, start to actually make our own culture more. Um, that even at this time they were they were it was in the late sixties early seventies that they were fighting to put more Australian content on TV because it was just – they just imported everything and just brought everything over from England or America. So at that point, there might not have been a satirical element in the mayor having images of the queen in both his home and his place of work that wouldn't be seen as as archaic or reactionary in any way. No, absolutely not. That was still okay. pretty normal. Okay. Um, and I, I think even to, to what you're saying, I think that, that the image of the mayor also plays into the title, the title of the film and the name of the town of Paris. For starters, Peter Weir has said that he originally came up with the idea in France. But I think that also in, in regards to this, that Paris represents a cultural ideal, a kind of a bastion of sophistication. Um, and that it functions in the film as a mockery of our attempts to play civilized and cultured that it's like we can put the name Paris on it, but it's still it's still just a dirt water town in the middle of nowhere, and that he can dress up and put on all his airs, but he's still just a bloody Australian. Is British culture, or, or maybe was British culture, seen as being superior to Australian culture? Oh, it depends on who you spoke to. <laughs> uh, if you've seen the Barry McKenzie films, have you seen either of those? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah then you get an idea of what a large portion of Australians thought of English culture. Um, I always remember the scene where they're walking down London and they're just slipping and sliding on all the dog poo and they're like, ah, bloody dog shit. <laughs> That's always been my image of London for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> uh, we definitely, it's a it's one of those classic love-hate relationships that um, Australians have often loved the underdog and sticking it up, uh, the people in charge, and especially people who have heirs. 
so that riffing and uh, making fun of Australian of English culture is is very common. And you look to even like a lot of our uh, the great figures that we lionise, like uh, Ned Kelly, who was robbing the English, uh, or you know Breaker Morant, who was executed by the English for going against their stupid orders, and even Gallipoli, which is the Australians getting slaughtered by English off, off, officers making bad decisions and sending them into mass be massacred. Um, so we've often had this antagonistic relationship with England. Going back to Arthur, I just wanted to point out, it, people treat him like a child, and when you look at him compared to the mayor, I mean, he's two heads shorter than the mayor. It's amazing. They, and they play that off really well. I mean, that might just be where they're standing at one point, but there's one point where I'm looking at him and I'm just like, wow, he is so short. And like I said, he's he's infantilized a few times. He's He's not as masculine as other people. And I think the biggest thing with that is that he doesn't drive in a city of Paris where it is all about automobiles and automobile culture. And the youth are all about driving their automobiles like maniacs. He doesn't drive. And when he gets into a car, a pink car, by the way, and to try to uh, start the engine and drive, he can't do it. He just he is suffocated inside the car. He has to hurry up and get out of there. And so much of this film, like I said, the only real change that he exhibits, I mean, he brings about change in the city, but the change that he exhibits is finally by the end of the film, he is driving away from the from the town. But I love that moment, too, when he is able to drive. It's almost like the mayor is driving him. He's the one, like, Arthur will pull up, and then the mayor will almost push the car back. He's like third act blowout of the film, where the youth are finally just tearing ass and killing a lot of people and destroying things in town. And the mayor is using Arthur almost like a weapon against Daryl to take him out. Well, you could certainly, what everything I just said, you could read as a metaphor for that, that, you know, the, the, the people who, that he is ca- incapable of doing anything for himself. So he sits in the sh- shadow of a more powerful person being his brother to begin with. And then the mayor later. And if you look at, if you say the mayor represents England and Arthur represents Australia, then that's could be a pretty savage indictment. Well, Arthur never maintains any kind of eye contact with anyone else in the film. It's just one of the more, one of the most expressive aspects of his performance that even even if he wasn't placed next to people in emphasizing his uh diminutive stature and he always speaks in that uh, almost falsetto whisper uh he just he never looks at anyone and you know, that scene with the uh the death of daryl it's actually probably the most expressively shot and edited scene in the film there's sort of more stylistic amplification there in terms of sort of violating rules of continuity and stuff to really focus on this savage energy. One of the things about car culture, of course, is that people will do aggressive and antisocial things behind the wheel of a car that they would never do in person. It has this dehumanizing power. It has this power that somehow if we do this, People will perceive the car doing it, not us, you know. And so uh, in, in that sense, Arthur kind of becomes more like the youth, you know, who we very rarely see. The cars almost appear to be driving themselves. There are only a couple of scenes where we uh, where we actually see the people in the cars. So so I think 
the the satire of car culture and and colonialism and this proliferation of uh, visual motifs in that sort of final melee, which I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute. So it really all kind of comes together in that scene with with Arthur and the mayor and Daryl. Yeah, I, I remember reading years ago an article on uh, road, Australian road movies because there there are a, a significant number of them. Uh, we are a very strong car culture, and uh, especially where where I live in Melbourne and Victoria, we're still you know, heaps of cars everywhere, but we've got a lot of public transport. There's a lot of bike paths, a lot of footpaths. You know, you can walk everywhere if you need to. And I spent some time in New South Wales recently, and you, there's just no bike paths and no footpaths and just everybody, every drive past every house, and there's like three cars parked in the front yard. Um, so the car culture is definitely very strong there. And the, the film was actually shot just near Bathurst, which is where one of the biggest car races happens in Australia every year and is kind of a focal point for a lot of the Ford Holden culture of the last 40 years. Uh, in an article I was reading on Australian road movies, they made this great point that uh, in Australian road movies, the the road represents um, the open road is instead of whereas Americans look at the open road in their road movies and see a journey and they see hope and they see a new tomorrow and adventure and all this kind of stuff. Australian road movies see the road and they see a car coming at them on the wrong side. And this, this film is definitely, it's, it's, it, you know, it represents that in the very first couple of minutes with the, the lion car, the trap car that just explodes right in front of them and derails everything. Well, and it's that lion car that really kind of helps us get into that third act because Charlie is the one who really, you know, Charlie's not entirely mentally stable. And rather than waiting for an accident, he ends up taking out the reverend of the town. He, instead of waiting until after dark, we get this great scene of another car accident earlier in the film where it's almost like the fire brigade coming out because there's an accident outside of town. We see all these guys get together very quickly, go out, get the wreck. They have this kind of caravan through town uh, of these vehicles, take it into the chop shop, and then they start their work and just pulling everything apart. You know, the doctor gets the corpse or the, the body. Um, and actually he's, he's not dead. He's very far from dead, <laughs> but it's better that way, <laughs> but we get this whole operation and Arthur is not privy to that, but later on, after Charlie, I guess he's tired of waiting for the next car accident, so he makes one himself by shooting at the the Reverend's car and taking care of that. That's when Arthur is finally privy to what is fully going on in this, and then we also get him seeing what had happened, and we get the mayor giving a, a string of alternative facts as far as what happened to this vehicle you know he suddenly says no no this was an accident nothing untoward going on here even though we see charlie with this bloody jacket that he's wearing and i'm like oh my god that it's such a great image yeah he took the jacket off the body and the dog collar as well the reverend's dog collar which is all drenched red now Oh. <laughs> and the grin on his face like just that that bruce spence grin that nobody else can do I think more than anything, he was tired of being the low man on the totem pole, you know, only getting the hood ornament. And this one, he, this is his kill, basically, and he gets to, to, to claim what he killed. When I watched it again last year, I since I'd watched it last, I'd, I'd done an honors degree at Melbourne University, and I did my honors thesis on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, 
and specifically the cannibalism in relation to anthropology and political and cultural studies. And watching and I, uh, this film uh, with that in mind and kind of the way that I read Texas Chainsaw really drove home that to me what this film that underneath there's lots of different elements to it but the bit that seemed to be the most pertinent to Australian culture over the last 200 years is that state-sanctioned violence is acceptable and anything else is not and more than that though is that the problem with a statement like that is that it's a do as I say not as I do kind of thing but that never works out and so the conflict between the elders and the youth is that we're allowed to cause havoc with cars, but you're not allowed to cause havoc with cars. And it's the point at which Charlie goes, no, I'm an, I'm an elder as well. I want this shiny thing and steps up and takes control of the, the violence that everything really starts to break apart. Well, later at the ball, isn't it implied that he is – Maybe a, a one-sixteenth veg. Doesn't one of the townspeople turn to the doctor and says, this is, one, this is part of your work too? Yeah. Am I remembering they, that correctly? So he's yeah, a sort do. of walking patient, right, that, that the other ones can't really function. But he somehow was reintegrated in the, in the, into the community after being operated on by the doctor. At least that's how I read that line. It's definitely implied, but it's left very ambiguous. So it's sort of, it is, I'd say it is open to interpretation, but I think that, that Charlie is definitely an ambiguous figure that has his feet in a couple of different areas. And I think that you mentioned the word for this sort of reverting to a sort of barbarian state, but I think that it's especially with the car iconography and the way that the cars all have the sounds of animals. That rather than saying barbarian, we should perhaps say bestial states. Well, um, you know, I had that in my notes, and I even had the word uh, bestial and bestiality. But when you say that word to Americans, uh, the, uh, many of our listeners would think we're talking about copulating. With animals, but yes, I I, I agree. Uh, I wouldn't be uh, surprised if that was happening in one of the sheds in the town, but yep. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Well, those guys yes. are kidnapping that cow at the beginning of the film and throwing. That it is through. such a great scene. True. That that is such a great scene. Once again, a lot of the stuff that we see at the beginning, when we have no exposition to provide you know, any kind of context for it, it's just complete surrealism you know that 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 okay you have you have hunting and then you have poaching and then you have this thing that looks like kidnapping and and that the imagery that that puts together this idea of the hunt and this idea of the car all of those strains of imagery, all of those visual motifs come together in that one moment that we see at the beginning of the film, but with no context at all. It's just one of the strangest things like I've ever seen near the beginning of a movie. I wasn't sure on that crappy VHS car that at Eat People version, I thought it was a kangaroo. It took until I rewatched the beautiful version. I was like, oh, no, no, that's a, co- that's a cow. But poof. 
It's like where well, they're really getting into the Australian symbolism here. Well, we well, certainly that... get plenty of Australian symbolism and a mention of kangaroos in the mayor's wonderful little poem, which I hope we'll talk about later. Oh, yes. Yeah. Is that poem from someplace? I mean, it's just such a almost like here are all of the Australian terms that we can think of. It, it sounds a lot like some of the old Australian ballad songs that I've heard, but nothing nothing that kind of abstract. Mm. <laughs> generally, generally Australian ballads are that narrative, very narrative-based, um, and so that one is just really abstracted. But he refers to it. He does say that it's it's not so much that it's a, a poem. It's what does he he does refer to it as? Um, Forgotten the old school war cry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you forgotten the meaning of those words? Woomera, Woomera, Babaloo, Boomerang, Crocodile, Kookaburra, Wombat, Orangutan, Wee-ho, Way-ho, Taramanga Mine, Quandong, Billabong, Gundabluey Pine, Platypus, Emu, Wallaby, Roo, Ivers, Bolga, the White Cockatoo, Marabara, Cara, Colamine, Banko, Bogamine, Aramine, Nevertine, Yanka, Hoopra, Hoopra, It's implied that it's kind of like a verbal version of a secret handshake, that it's some sort of arcane, almost Freemasons-like club. And the Freemasons were quite... Uh, were a big thing here back in the 70s. I actually just recently discovered that my dad was a Freemason when I found his case um, after I was uh, going through his stuff after he passed on and had all the the apron and coins and all this strange arcane kind of weird stuff in there. So I think that is more just a reference to the, the boys' clubs and the weird shenanigans that they get up to behind the scenes and who really pulls the strings. Well, that club where he's giving the, the, well, I guess it's a town council meeting, right? Where he's giving mm. that uh, little song. At first, I was thinking it was like, you know, Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree or something. But <laughs> basically, it feels like those guys are just up there at the front of the room and there's nobody else. Like at one point, they cut to Arthur sitting in the audience, quote unquote, and it seems like he's the only guy there. Like they just have this thing and they, you know, it, it seems like it's all for show. You know, we're going to have this meeting, we're going to present orders and vote upon them and do all these things just for empty symbolism is what it the way that i took it yeah my my note was uh arcane buffoonery boys club silliness grandstanding and nationalistic references to the days of yore yeah that's where he really starts hitting on those pioneer days i love that they're sitting around the table having you know discussing when they're about to make uh, arthur the the parking officer and there's just glasses of beer in front of everybody half drunk and everyone's smoking a cigarette and it's just you know it's very wake and fright moment of that just that constant presence of alcohol which you don't really see elsewhere in the film well and the pomp and circumstance of them presenting arthur with his symbol you know and giving it to him in this box and everything and i'm just like yeah when they show it finally him walking out and pulling up this armband i'm like that's it it was an armband which he doesn't even put on him he just puts back in the box and right. then hands him the box which is like you think wait oh no it looks like they're not going to give him the role after all it's like wait what <laughs> well at the beginning of the film when they check him out of the hospital so he can go to his own brother's funeral. The first thing the mayor does is walk up to him and give him a black tie so he won't be inappropriately dressed for his brother's own funeral. 
Yeah, just all about the 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 show rather than what's actually happening. We talked a little bit about how the mayor is dressed for this uh, costume ball. I was kind of surprised to see Arthur's costume that the mayor picks out, where he's dressed as this uh, what a Royal Navy officer he looks like. I looked at all of those figures at the ball as being various mythical or aspirational figures of Australian or new Victorian national identity. We have a Chinaman. Dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. And, and they're they're wearing placards around their necks so we can tell who they are. I groaned so much when he walked in and got that side. It just says Chinaman and the, the oh, just cultural cringe. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's an Outback Frontier maid. Uh, there's, you know, uh, the sort of... Uh, uh, the wife of the mayor is dressed as if she were the protagonist in uh, my brilliant career. Uh, there's an early missionary. Uh, and then the one guy's wearing the kid's cowboy suit where the vest barely comes down to the bottom of his uh, pectoral muscles. And so I imagine Arthur is a, as a captain would be this, uh, this guy who can't even uh, you know, drive a car that somehow his aspirational fantasy figure would be the, the master of the fleet, you know? Right. Uh, uh, and once again, you know, the mayor is that is that vague 19th century Western mayor, you know, that you would see that might be played by Ward Bond or somebody, you know, in a in a 1940s or 50s movie. All of that imagery of the the pioneer days and the and the noble suffering and the sacrifices of, of the, the people, you know, all of this just you know, colonialist bullshit that they're spouting off, the crazier that that gets, the more hallucinatory that imagery becomes sort of reaching its peak at the, 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 the mayor's sort of song poem, uh, Guillaume Apollinaire Lodge incantation or whatever. That's right at the moment that the, that the youth launch their onslaught on the town, you know, that that's, that's the moment where they have this, psychotic break with the past and then they have this uh, uh hopeless future represented by the kids where, where they just completely physically destroy the town yeah that is the the moment where it's that you know the the, the ability to control violence breaks that it's it's usurped by another and they completely lose control to the point where even the, the town itself is demolished as the cars run through buildings yeah they're not just going after the people in the town they are destroying the the actual town pulling down the facade of the town hall you know, just destroying everything and and i don't remember who said it before but yes these are our faceless cars there's one point where somebody comes up and basically stabs the driver like a spear into the driver through the window but for the most part these are just completely faceless there's this is the introduction too of the spiked vw which is one of the most iconic cars from this this movie. It doesn't really fit in with the rest of the cars, but it seems to be the next logical step. Like, we see these cars that are kind of tricked out. They have faces painted on the sides. Kind of reminds me of the old airplanes where they look like sharks, these kind of things. Right. And then one of the cars that the the mayor ends up destroying which to me is really what puts them on the collision course he burns this car and that's got a uh, a saw blade stuck through the top of it uh very much like frankenstein's car from death race 2000 
and then that spiked VW just kind of comes out of nowhere, and it is just miraculous. I mean, this thing is a vision, and just the way that it kind of hangs out, hangs back, and there's some light that will come off of it, almost to signal to the other cars, and this anthropomorphic vehicle that we never really see the driver or anything, and it takes out, I mean, to see one of the townspeople impaled on that vehicle is just one of the most cathartic moments of the film. Well, that's the Smedley, the, the tow truck driver, you know, so it's that, it's the, the, that inversion of the human and the machine, you know, that, that, you know, he's been dragging around these, these moribund automobiles these, uh, with the dead bodies in them. And so now he's being sort of towed away by the, um, uh, you know, by being impaled on the, uh, on the VW and that image of the VW, that was the absolute centerpiece of every publicity campaign for the film in, in any language, in, in any version of the film that that was, as a matter of fact, I think, you know, anyone who's seen the film or anyone who even knows what the film is about or has heard of it would close their eyes. And then that spike VW is the, is the image that they would, they would remember. Yeah, my, my first encounter with, like, before I'd seen the film as a kid, I had a book called um, Phil Hardy's Encyclopedia of Horror. Yes. Is, yeah, amazing book. I think I read that about six times by the time I was 15. And the image they have for that for Cars at A Paris is a, just a shot of the car with a black background. It's not even from the film. It's one of the publicity stills. And I, I think in some ways you do see a lot of comments like my own experience with it with and seeing the full version and coming away from it not – exactly thrilled by it is because it's a lot of that is the anticipation and expectation because you see this imagery of this car and you've got kind of Mad Max hanging in the back of your head and you have a certain idea of what this film will be and it just refuses to be that film. And so the first time is a bit like, Oh, where's where's the spiked car? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because it comes so late in the film. It's not even in there for. I don't. I don't think it'd be in there for five minutes. I, I don't think it's even on screen that long. <laughs> and the trailer does present the film as if it were going to be what we later saw Death Race two thousand become. Right. Oh, yeah. That car would have been the star of other things. I know there's a uh, a Brazilian film about a black VW. I can't remember the name of it, but I was researching that when I was doing a Killer Cars article. And Cars at A Paris came up in the discussion of that as far as this is not a killer car uh, movie. You know, this, it is not one of these where the cars possess. It's not Christine or anything. But you would think from that image, I mean, going back to that VHS of the cars that eat people that's front and center that's front and center on everything yeah and uh also it's great because uh on that vhs at the bottom it says it's written and directed by peter quote-unquote mad max weir and i'm like uh <laughs> i don't think he had anything to do with that film <laughs> so other than he was probably in country when that movie was being shot <laughs> that's great that is really great <laughs> actually he might not have even been in country he might have been over in making gallipoli at that point on that note uh oh the cars that iconic imagery uh the italian job was 60s wasn't it yes yeah, because the two main car, the other car that comes back at the end is the Reverend's Mini turned into something quite different. That's the one that they throw the net over, which is another kind of animalistic moment where they trap the car with the rope net. Well, and um, then they they surround the car and they stab the driver. It it reminds me of the 
the the ritual slaughter scene at the end of Apocalypse Now, and then of course the the other guy, the one of the townspeople has a, a disembodied car door and a spear that he's holding it like a shield, you know. And at that point, you know, we can you know we can talk about this this uh, eruption of the eruption of the frontier, this this revenge of all of the people that they murdered in the course of their their expansion, uh, sort of just sort of coming back at them in some way that yeah, they, they can't get away from the crimes of their fathers. Yeah, it is just amazing to see the way that things explode in this town. And I wrote in my, my notes, of course, the uh, the famous Paris is burning at one point. This The whole town is just coming apart. And to me, it's all what you were saying. It's it's the elders are finally paying their dues. They're paying their dues in that they've lived on the death of people. They've caused the death of people that drive past the town. But also, they've just ignored this problem with the youth so much. I mean, it's no coincidence that this was made in 1974. And you know, we've had riots going on. We've had protests. I know Australia was not free of the youth movement, you know, so it, it's definitely one of these like, hey, you need to pay attention to this and you need to work on this relationship because there is a huge generation gap here that is causing all of these problems and you're just ignoring it while these guys are tearing ass around the town while you people are over at your church and you know you're at your churches and your institutional learning facilities we've got these guys who are just tearing ass through everything and there's no discussion between them there's a huge gap between where we have Daryl and where we have the mayor but also I think they're paying the dues for the the generations that came before them. The cars, which are a sort of culturally loaded symbol of uh, of quote unquote progress of the of the the conquering of distance through uh, functional technology, um, uh, you know all of that all of that stuff that they have the cars have descended into this bestial nature and the youth driving the cars are, are this eruption of the return of the repressed of all of these, uh, all of these things that the white people have, have systematically destroyed and it just comes back to consume them at the end. I think one of the, the interesting things about the specifically kind of Australian things that this end, another part that made me feel like it was, you know, very pertinent to what's going on at the moment is that even though there's a, a somewhat cathartic release of violence at the end, it kind of just peters out and everyone just walks away. <laughs> like the, the You know, the mayor doesn't die. He just, you know, tells his family to go sit in the car and everybody else just walks out of town. And it's such a, it's so typically Australian to not deal with it, to just go, uh, stuff it and move on to the next town. It's well, it's just that really that that always really strikes me as an, a, a really significantly powerful ending. Well, yes, as our Brooklyn protagonist says, sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't. Yeah, I love that bit where he's the one driving out of town and everybody else is walking and they look like they're what they are. They look like they're refugees. You know, it reminds me of, you know, seeing from Fiddler on the Roof or something, seeing all the people leaving, you know, the, uh, the shtetl. So it's just like, 
and they've got their car parts on uh, wagons and taking these things out almost like a, a rickshaw. You know, it's just like, wow, <laughs> some great, great images. Like the Exodus and Ten Commandments. With our sheep and oxen, we will go. And calves. He's not only overcoming his fear of driving, it's also a subversive anti-government act because he's not allowed to drive anymore because of what happened. Yeah, we haven't even talked, we didn't even say why he doesn't drive, which is that he murdered someone before with his vehicle. Uh, They make it a lot more violent in the overdubbed version that he ran this guy down. Uh, Running someone down is, to me, a very, very violent act, whereas if you accidentally hit someone with your car, okay. But yeah, Arthur is is very damaged by having caused this person's death before. He doesn't seem to be so bothered by causing Daryl's death, though. I think he's got a bit more reason this time. Terry Camilleri, his, his performance in this is, is so delicate, and I, I mean that in a very, very positive way, that it's it he does play this very sort of shrunken, somewhat weak character, but there is so much uh, electricity in his performance that you can sense that he like he he doesn't he feels like a real alive person who has experienced all of these things that have shaped him and brought him to this point yeah i know that some people have said that he is a is not the right person to be playing this protagonist but i completely am on board with him as this he's he embodies he's he's small we talked about that so he can be uh made to look like he's a young person even though he seems to have an older face and a comb over just the way he's he plays that meekness so well and to me that character doesn't need to be in the forefront that character shouldn't be mel gibson coming into this town he needs to be someone meek and mild and he needs to be that catalyst because really the the main conflict is between daryl and the mayor and arthur and to me charlie and even the reverend are there to kind of facilitate this feud the showdown between the young and the old by the end of the film Absolutely. And and even his portrayal is, is part of the very many subversive elements that the film has of how it, you know, subverts expectations that, you know, in any other film, yeah, the car, the spiked car would have been front and center or the, the, the crazed doctor storyline would have been the focus or there's so many elements here that in any other film would have been, you know, pushed upon and, and you know to think that the, in a, at a time when almost every australian film was filled with naked breasts there and there's no nudity in this film it, it's so, such an antithesis to anything that we were producing at this time and i think that's why it exploded out of it that it wasn't a success in australia and that instead but it did make a splash on the international scene and the world took notice because it was like oh this is this is something different this is actually some strange new film that doesn't fit into any mold that we've seen before. Uh, in the DVD extra interview for Cars at Eight Paris, Peter Weir himself says that, that one of the reasons that he thinks the film wasn't a commercial success was not having an engaging or active protagonist, even though that was just built into the architecture of the film. And I've been going over like various movie review sites that for the film, you know, like blogs and things like that. And they all bring up all this stuff. Why didn't we see more of the spiked car? You know, why was the protagonist such a wimp? You know, why didn't we find out more about what the mad doctor was doing? It had all these great opportunities to turn into this awesome film and it just doesn't go there. So, 
uh, I think, you know, Ben, your comments about it, it being completely subversive, not only in terms of what uh, people would expect from an Australian film, but what people would expect from a sort of low budget exploitation film in general. It just it refuses to do that. It has this this fairly meandering episodic narrative that that goes for long stretches of time uh, where we just get a sense of the uh, the organic or the the, uh, the the sort of the ecosystem of the of the town. I mean, and, and it's truly subversive. Well, it, it, I think it, it definitely didn't help it. But the, the, the really strange thing about it is it actually probably should have been a success um, that when it was made, it didn't have a distributor because it was in pretty much independently financed a little bit of money from the government. And when they took it to Cannes, uh, Village Roadshow had agreed to distribute it, but they hadn't signed any paperwork. And they came back from Cannes, and they actually had a big success in Cannes. Um, they they promoted it themselves. They took spikes with them and did a car up with spikes and drove it <laughs> going around the streets and getting attention. They had sold-out sessions. They had great buzz from Cannes, lots of good meetings. And then they came back and they did a screening in Sydney that went fantastically well. Um, and they was highly publicised and was sold out and the, the, the audience loved it. And then the reviews were excellent. It got so many positive reviews. The critics recognised that it was something spectacular. Um, you know, one critic even said that it was, uh, you know, what is it? It's imagination, it's directorial control, rank it way above in its sheer watchability any other Australian film of recent years apart from Wake and Fright. So it was already being identified as like a really key film. But then they took it to Melbourne. They, they decided to distribute themselves because Village then dropped out, which is so typical of Village Roadshow. They still do this kind of stuff. And they actually dropped out and said, no, we're not interested in distributing and left them in the lurch. So they decided to four wall it themselves and take it around. And they brought it to Melbourne to screen at the Melbourne Film Festival. And uh, – it, but it wasn't publicised because it wasn't actually meant to be part of the festival. It was brought in as a late replacement for Antonioni's China because it had received <laughs> anonymous threats to blow up the theatre it was playing in if it screened. So they just chucked it in at 4.30pm on the afternoon of a public holiday to screen in place of Antonioni and everyone just sat there and went, what the hell is this crap? And uh, it completely tanked and then they struggled to get it screened and finally, like I think about six months later, it started screening in Melbourne, not Sydney, and nobody turned up and it was just a disaster. Apparently, actually, on the day that it opened, they didn't, they didn't then have another premiere. They just opened at 11 a.m. on a you know, Thursday morning or whatever and uh, Tim Burstall, who directed Stork, was in the screening and had to go and tell the projectionist that they'd gotten the reels the wrong way round <laughs> while Peter Weir and John Mellion around the corner of a pub getting drunk. <laughs> so it was it actually like all the ingredients were there for it to be a hit. Um, and then just, you know, everything got in the way. Con is such a terrible thing. You know, the, the distributors show up there. It's like having an affair or something. You know, you, you, show up and you're at a conference or a, a, a festival and you sleep with somebody and then they tell you they're going to call and they don't, that's, that's the way, that's the way they are uh, at, at con. The distributors yeah. are, are notorious for, for just leaving these filmmakers still in Dutch, you know, on the film that they've made uh, telling them that, you know, when we get back home, we'll take care of all the papers. And it's, it's just, it's a horrible, horrible thing. I know so many filmmakers who have had 
uh, films at Sundance or Cannes, uh, you know, and just wait for our call when we get home and that happens. Yeah. Well, this this thing, this actually happened before Khan. This was the local distributor in meetings before they left for Khan. So but was yeah. Village Roadshow uh, big at that point? Yeah, they were already well on their way. Okay. Um, they've been around for a good long time. They, I think picture they started out through uh, exhibition and then built on to exactly. um, producing on top of that. And now, yeah, they're a distributor, exhibitor, and producer. Right. They're uh, partnered with Golden Harvest in Asia. They're they're huge. They're huge. Oh, they absolutely. Well, they you know they were in had money in Matrix and all those. So they've, yes. they've been. They're, but they're pretty much they're the big behemoth that um, swallows up all the big tentpole films and right. uh, treats everything else not so good. All right, so we're going to take a break and play a set of interviews. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Jonathan Rayner, the author of the films of Peter Weir. After that, we'll hear from one of the producers of The Cars of Day Paris, Hal McElroy. Then we'll hear from the star of Cars, Arthur Waldo himself, Terry Camilleri. And finally, we'll hear from the man who played Charlie, Bruce Spence. And we'll be back with all of those after these brief messages. I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast. I am Albert Weltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We We talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect, either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia... We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA, we've got stuff on like adaptations, we've got stuff on movies that have been turned into tv shows a couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores proud of those ones and we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist so <laughs> got that oh yeah with uh with more to come so that's us that's us uh, so yeah listen to the film room i have to credit the backtrack it is from john carpenter's album lost themes i suggest picking up that album it's a really great album but yeah you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on itunes if you prefer to subscribe there we're out there yeah thank you all hope you listen to us and good night all right
It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. What got you interested in writing about Peter Weir? I guess because I, I started seeing um, Australian films on TV in the must have been the sort of the late seventies or early eighties, and the first crop of things that came onto British television in the uh, sort of end of the seventies or beginning of the of the nineteen eighties. And one of the first things I saw was was Picnic Hanging Rock, and that got me interested in Weir. And it was then nearly well, nearly a decade later, I suppose, I turned around to actually do my PhD on Weir and, and came back to it. And, and by then I'd realized, well, hey, this is the same guy who's done Witness in the States and he's done Dead Poets Society and he's done things like Gallipoli. So it's, it looked like a very varied uh, output at that stage. I mean, obviously there are some really strong consistencies stylistically and thematically throughout it, but it seemed like a really interesting body of work. And there wasn't that much out, out there on him at that stage when I was, when I started my PhD by 1991, there wasn't a great deal of writing about Australian cinema at all, and, and not very much about Weir, certainly. So it, was, it seemed like a good idea. It was, a, it was something that was extremely interesting. And, and out of that, I think seeing the, particularly the kind of the, the interest of the horror motifs that stand out really in Picnic, and then seeing those in a, a, a really much more sort of subversive and, and rough-hewn state in things like Cars was, was, was very interesting, I think. His work, at a cursory glance, it seems, I don't want to say uneven, but it's very varied, let's say. I think it, I think it is. I mean, I think um, he talks about, he, he talks in an interview, or he, he did used to talk in an interview about um, Gallipoli being his, his kind of graduation film, where where his technique, the craft, caught up with his inspiration. And up until then, he I think he's quite um, self-critical of the way in which um, the earlier films were really made without any kind of... Uh, apprenticeship as such, so he was he was making it up as he went along. He was sort of charging ahead and letting the, the style catch up. And I think that's, in some ways, that's unfair. I think much of the, that's that's not really um, uh, a black mark against him. When you see that in in many of the Australian filmmakers uh, who are operating at the same time in those early seventies films, even if that's true, I think the the things that stand out in Weir's films are the the more mystical 
uh, sort of transcendental aspects of style, that the, the interest in subjectivity, subjectivity and the subconscious, those things are the most characteristic, the most fascinating aspects of those 70s films. And um, in some ways, those are, those are the things that die back a little bit. They're, they're less evident in things like Gallipoli and Year of Living Dangerously. They come back, I think, very interestingly in some of the aspects of, of things like Witness and Dead Poet Society. But um, in some ways, uh, certainly from my perspective, perhaps because they're the first films that I fell in love with those 70s films are the the most um the most intriguing the most uh, concerned with incommunicable aspects of of personal experience i don't want to uh, make light of of australian cinema from the 70s but it it felt like from an outsider's point of view it felt like almost the wild west you know it felt like so many people all striving for a common goal you know almost their manifest destiny but making so many films in so many different ways i mean there's such a great amount of ingenuity coming out of these movies from the 70s Mm, I think that's that's true of, of the 70s in Australia. It's also true of the 70s and sort of early 80s in New, in New Zealand. There's a great deal of uh, innovation and, and improvisation and, and sort of working things from the, from the ground up. And you have people who have a, a degree of, of sort of technical background, either film school background or TV background like, like we. You have people like um, George Miller who has really nothing more than um, uh, sort of amateur filmmaking passion behind something like Mad Max. Um, and those are, again, I think from, from my perspective, those are the films that are, are the, the, the greatest, the, 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 the most striking, the most powerful ones, because they are, not that they are entirely successful, but I think the fact that they are almost kind of incompletely worked out but fascinating ideas. That certainly, I think, characterizes Carzai Paris. You know, it's, it's a, it's a great concept, uh, and the execution uh, certainly at the time was seen seemed to be to be lacking. But I think in in retrospect, it's it's a film which epitomizes that era of challenge, both, both sort of stylistically and generically, and and experimentation stylistically, where people are finding their way towards um, an indigenous cinema. For me, look, looking at something like the Cars of Day Paris and you know Mad Max, especially Mad Max Two, and some of the other films, there seemed to be a real car culture around. Yes, well, yes, I, th- I think it's I think it's very strong. I think I think the opinion is perhaps divided over this. As a, as a colleague of mine, Australian who works in the states, said, there's, "There's nothing Australian about Mad Max. Mad Max is just a um, a cop um, revenge." Road movie, um, but I think um, certainly if you look at um, the, the people who are first responding to those films, and I think um, the books that were influential upon me when I was writing my thesis were people like um, Susan Dermody and, and Elizabeth Jacker's study of Australian genres, and they saw things like Cars and Mad Max as definitely responding to something which is culturally specific about the car and about road violence and road danger. I was persuaded, and and, and I, I I still think that way. I think the Mad Max is the nearest thing you've got to an Australian franchise, you know, a really strong character and narrative body of film, which is internationally in- instantly recognizable. Um, and Cars is, Cars is not necessarily in the same uh, lead, but on the other hand, it's exactly the same kind of material. It's the same subversive, blackly humorous treatment of, of drastic road danger. And I think that's that is something which does seem to be nationally specific. It is something which which crops up, and not just in sort of gothic films like that, but in, in other examples of of 
Australian road films like um, uh, Kiss or Kill, Bill Bennett's Kiss or Kill. It's interesting, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm thinking that Road Warrior or Mad Max 2 and Cars Day Paris almost have kind of a Western feel to them as well, kind of the man who mm. comes into town and changes yeah. things. You know, n- Not necessarily the new sheriff in town. I would not say that our protagonist of Cars Day Paris, he really doesn't ha- – he's kind of a disenfranchised uh, protagonist, you know, but, but he is a, a catalyst for change. Definitely, I think um, I think there there is a really strong element of of the Western um, in Cars, and and more so, uh, even more so in in Mad Max. There's, but equally, there is. As you, I think you're com- completely right. There's a there's a, a a questioning or an undermining of what it means to be a hero in those kinds of narratives as well. And Arthur is is very small. He's very puny. He's he's very frightened. If anything, you have him almost like the the kind of the. The ransom Stoddard of, of Liberty Valance, you know, the, the character who grows into or is forced into a violent, heroic role, and, and how disturbing that is to see that that kind of transformation take place. The Western motifs are, are actually fairly pervasive um, in in those films. I mean, the the, the standoffs in the in the, the main streets of Paris. The I think there's even the, the use of the motif of uh, the harmonica motif from Once Upon a Time in the West. In, in Cars 8 Paris. So there is a very, very strong and ironic treatment of, of Western aspects, I think. And again, one of my, one of my favorite scenes in, um, uh, Mad Max 2 is the, the tribe of, of bad guys driving away from the, the settlement in the desert and you've got police sirens and you've got a cavalry bugle at the same time. You've got all of those aspects of, of, of road movie and Western, um, the, uh, the savages in the desert, uh, tied up with that. It's, it's, um, it's a very fertile, very provocative mixture of elements, I think, in, in, in those best examples of, of Australian Gothic. The thing that really always takes me about Weir is kind of the, I would say, the dreamlike quality of his films, especially Cars at Eight Paris, Picnic at Hanging Rock, and The Last Wave, really. Mm-hmm. There's an irreality to those, and I can never really quite, well, with, with The Last Wave, it's a little bit easier, but with some of the other ones, I can't really put my finger on why they feel so dreamlike. There are some interesting technical choices, sort of stylistic choices that we're we're talked about in relation to those films. There's um, in in the last wave, certainly there's there's shooting at uh, forty frame, forty eight frames a second in some uh, aspects, some scenes in those where you get the, he talks about an exaggerated stillness in the face, a kind of a slowing down, it's almost somnambulant kind of feel to some scenes there. Uh, but in both in last wave and in picnic, there are also uh, interesting experiments on the soundtrack with uh, slow down uh, earthquakes and things like that that he adds to the soundtrack, which produce strangely sort of almost subliminal effects to, in, in the viewer. That's very noticeable, say in the in the title sequence of, of Picnic, but it's it's there elsewhere as well. In um, Cars, I'm, I'm not sure quite how it. I think it's just the sort of the outlandishness of the of the narrative situation. It's the the strange uh, kind of tr- transport. To a, um, an era or a sort of a, a, specu- a speculative kind of space and time where the rules are, where the rules are gone, you know, where all bets are off. And that's again where I think Cars and Mad Max share something. There's this sense of, uh, of an apocalypse that's either just about to happen or one which is in the process. There are, 
you see headlines and sort of newspaper hoardings in cars of oil crises and martial law and things like that, just out of our line, the world is the world is disintegrating, and that's um, again that seems quite um, I was going to say prophetic, but it's, it's it's something which other films have done much more much more explicitly, but it's there in a, a strange sense of unease in cars and, and more explicitly, I suppose, in, in Mad Max, where you, you see the world end, you see the laws end. Looking at his American work, I get that again a little bit in Fearless, but mostly in the Mosquito Coast. Fearless is, is Weir's great underrated film. It's kind of like seeing The Last Wave done again in the States. Yes, it's a, it's a great shame that that film just didn't get the... Um, circulation and, and recognition that it uh, that it deserved i think it's it's one of his best and again it has a, it has a sort of the perfect casting of, of jeff bridges as the person who's slightly out of kilter with the rest of the world and it has the same kinds of effects as last wave i think with this slowing down those moments of slow motion that are introduced into but um fearless are exactly like those moments of dislocation and disorientation in the in the 70s gothic films the one that always stands out for me as far as really peter weir made this has to be green card <laughs> yes um well i was funny i was saying i was talking to somebody else about that recently this this um phd student of mine is working on a um a different auteur's um, body of work, and you, you, you occasionally you, you see yourself falling into the trap of well, if I'm talking about this this person's films, then all of these films are good. All of these films have have things in in common, and I, I have to find the good, and I have to justify this justify this film in a in a very old fashioned kind of cage de cinema way of of, of the, the director is always right. And um, at the time when Green Card came out, uh, somebody said to me, you know, you're going to have to try and explain Green Card. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think actually, I mean, I, again, we himself comes up with a very good, a very good account of it. It's, um, I think, it, it grows out of his love of uh, and his his sort of de- not necessarily deference to it, but his his respect for studio era Hollywood and the, the the craft of genre cinema, and so the the, the writing of that as a, um, a screwball comedy in some ways. But a screwball comedy with with some some teeth about immigration, which is you know uh, somebody ought to be rewatching it now. I think in the way that uh, um, America and and borders and things and, and who's welcome are all back on the agenda. So I mean it's 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 kind of sanitized. He's a he's French. He's not he's not any sort of dangerous kind of um, immigrant or perceived to be a dangerous immigrant. But it's it's there as a um, a gentle jousting i think at uh, the ideas of, of of tolerance and inclusion um within a fairly you know, a fairly harmless comedic vehicle i was i did read a review i think it said uh, um, andy mcdowell is 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 mahogany masquerading as porcelain which i thought was a, a terrible cutting thing to say but it's it's a long time ago now so you, you mentioned via email, you said that, uh, you know, what is going on with the cars today? Paris, there's a, yeah. kind of a resurgence. Of course, I'm in a bubble here. So what other things are you seeing around the film? A few years ago, it was it was a project to preserve um, important Australian films, which was uh, through the auspices of Kodak, I think. Um, and so cars has has been elevated to that status. It's been sort of recognized as an important Australian film of the, of the era. And I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, whether there's been a print restored of it for that archive. I did do an article about it for an Australian magazine, but that's uh, uh, must be about six or eight years ago, which which marked that, I think, alongside um, other m- much more sort of famous 
films, sort of films from the, the 40s and 50s. The, the fact that um, Cars made it in is, is, is it, might, it might be the fact that it's, it's Weir's first feature. It might be that it's a film that um, comes out of that very first flush of uh, Film Development Corporation money, that kind of moment. It's, it's also you know, it's had the, the, McElroy's, the McElroy twins attached to it as, as producers. It has you know, more more cachet perhaps than than other things, and it's uh, the very fact that it is such a uh, uneven and un- uh, unpredictable film is is in its favour. It's it's not not a film that's taking an easy way. It's it's quite a quite a risky film, and that's reflected, I suppose, in its lack of commercial success when it first came out. Of course, there's the story of its influence in the states and the the, the supposed um, influence it had on Paul Bartel to make. Um, Death Race 2000, with uh, Roger Coleman supposedly um, having a print of, of, of cars and, and taking the idea of weapon cars and giving it a much more cartoonic and much more straightforward treatment in that film in the 70s as well. Have you ever seen the American re-edit of the film? I haven't seen that. Um, I'm kind of um, kind of wary of, of, of it because uh, the stories that I read about that particular cut and how and how drastic it was, I, I was I was kind of wanting to preserve the memory of, of Weir's. It's a bit like that moment when you um, you can see um, um, Mad Max, the the, um, the circulation the circulated print of Mad Max with um, uh, American dub voices. It's one of those strange experiences where you think this is I've, I've stepped through the mirror somewhere and I'm, I'm, I'm watching the same thing but it's not the same yeah unfortunately for me that's the version I grew up on so I'm that's why I'm still kind of wary for me Mad Max kind of begins with Road Warrior and there's still that giant cloud over the original mm. where I'm just like thinking of those horrible voices that they put in well I think it's it depends to come back to your question about how Australian it is and how Australian you view it I mean I was talking to somebody about the, the latest film the latest Mad Max film and the fact that it's not an Australian landscape anymore you know it's it's Namibia or it's or it's CGI'd but the ideas are still I think very much Australian the idea of again this idea of masculinity and, and road violence um, are all entirely authentic I think and something that uh, when I was looking at um, looking at Fury Road um, in amongst Max's dream sequences Bizarrely, only for a split second, because the, the the film is cut so fast in those in those sequences. There's um, an Aboriginal face. An Aboriginal face appears in one of Max's nightmares, and that I think is is uh, an extraordinary inclusion. There aren't, as far as I can remember, there aren't any Aboriginal characters in Mad Max anywhere. So the the meaning of that as a, a, a grounding of the hero in a in a particularly guilt-ridden national narrative about the land and and who's who's let who down who's uh who has max failed to save that's great Uh, that's that's um a really pregnant fleeting image in that film which again i I don't know how many people have noticed it i only noticed it because i've freeze-framed it but uh, it's, it's there kind of going back to weird that's one of the things that i really like about the last wave is just how differently you can interpret that film when you look at things politically versus just a narrative direction i think that's true i i, I don't know in the coverage at the time of that film the again that was it was also produced by the McElroy twins and they they stated i think in an interview that they they saw the film as as um, as, as like a kind of a horror film, like a, a kind of a, a ghost story that could have happened anywhere. It could, you know, it could sell it to an American audience, and it would be just like um, a, a kind of an othering of, of Native American um, heritage. And I thought that that sounds like very special 
pleading and I th- and it's interesting that last wave did better in the states as far as I know than in, than than picnic did you know, picnic is a, is the most european art cinema film that the weird does and picnic only really gets a circulation in the states after the last wave but um that seems to me to be selling the film short and 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 not really being honest about the the absolute um, relevance of um, you know, a submerged Aboriginal culture in, in a city like Sydney. That's that's exactly what the film is about. It might well be sort of allegorised or, or again sort of sublimated into a horror story, but it's it's exactly that. Am I remembering correctly? Is there were there different cuts of Picnic at Hanging Rock that might have dis- uh, been distributed in the U.S.? I'm not sure if there were different cuts at the time. I mean, it has been. It has been subject to to recuts since, uh, and there were uh, there is a there is a director's cut uh, that came out I think in about two thousand and ooh two thousand and two two thousand and three something like that. There, there are certainly scenes that were shot um, that didn't make it into the the, the final cut of, of the original release. There are additional scenes around the kind of the visions of Miranda that uh, that Michael has after she disappeared, and there are also alternative endings that I, I believe were shot which weren't used. I think it makes an interesting uh, sort of balance to cars. And it's, it's far easier and it's far, it's far, far more common, I think, to, to champion Picnic as uh, the, the, the film that um, Australia can be proud of at the, at the time, you know, uh, what seems like a serious, aesthetically beautiful, complex, Europeanized art cinema text versus cars which is a bit rough around the edges looks a bit like a, a, um, a hammer horror at moments and looks a bit like um, Texas Chainsaw at other moments and, and you know, looks like um, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West at other moments you know it's far easier to sell um, a, a sedate and, and genteel film like Picnic than it is a, a kind of a, a raucous film like Cars but um, they're both indicative I think of the way that, um, that we uses these cultic elements in, in very subversive ways within within genres which are instantly familiar and, and, and recognizable to an audience. You've written about specific directors in the past, but it almost seems to come out of where they're from, from the place. You know, you've written about Jeff Murphy, you've written about Peter Weir, and these directors both started in New Zealand and, and Australia and then moved to the United States. Place seems so important. And then to look at your other work, especially some of your, your upcoming work here with um, Screening the Suburbs and uh, Mapping Cinematic North, again, you're very specific about place, which I appreciate. I, I find that this is very fascinating, especially the idea of looking at how these particular locations, you know, I don't know if you can call the suburbs a location, but looking at how they are represented in film. Mm, I think um, the fact that um, well, my colleague Graham Harper at um, at uh, Oakland and and I and now a colleague at uh, at Sheffield, where we worked on these these collections of, of books on cinema and landscape. I think um, they 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 come out of, I suppose, uh, um, or certainly from my perspective, on on the the importance of of landscape in Australian films, in films like Gallipoli and, and Mad Max and and. Uh, Something like Ray Lawrence's Jindabyne more recently. These, these films where landscape is, is absolutely central to the way in which characters operate, the way that gender is defined, the way that society's relationship with its environment uh, uh, is worked out in very painful ways often. I think 
out of that, we've we've ended up doing these these collections of essays and finding that lots of people think like us. You know, you, you can't separate the importance of landscape from the other um, key aspects of, of films from a variety of different film cultures. So, the the suburbs book has brought out a, a lot of um, great variety. We've we've got somebody writing about slums in Jakarta um, on the peripheries of, of um, uh, cities in, in Indonesia. We've got um, obviously some really um, key writing about um, films in Britain, the sort of the, the treatment of urban space in Britain. Um, also, I suppose, predictably, perhaps, the suburb in, in America, as the, the, the suburb as one of the most discussed sociologically and cinematically uh, environments in, in in America. Um, and also, we've got some, some great chapters, uh, somebody doing a, a chapter on um, uh, um, Australian beaches. There's Ellison's chapter on uh, the, the beach as the, the Australian suburb, the edge of the city. That stuff is, is, is all is all great in, in, in extending this discussion of, of landscape and also the idea of, of, of urban existence. So, yeah, that's, I think place places is is key to to cinemas is is it's key to identity tell me a little bit more about the the north book because you know of course when i i think of north i just think of canada but you're looking at <laughs> you're looking at north <laughs> everywhere that's as far north as you go. Yes, I think we 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 put um, my my colleague uh, Julie Dobson and I we put together a, a little conference in in Sheffield where we encourage people to think about this idea of the north, um, uh, north uh, this idea of the north as a as a derogatory term almost in in Britain you know and civilization civilization stops just just north of of, of London and everything else up further up up the country is. Uh, deprived and and economically depressed and and, and speaks funny and so uh, well, how do, how, do, how do we how do we rationalise that and uh, equally there's a there's a great deal of pride back the other way that uh, that the north is is where um, Britain really is where where authentic experience is where um, the best uh, of British cinema is set and things like uh, Saturday Night Sunday Morning or or Loneliness a Long Distance Runner or um, uh, the Sporting Life uh, the, these pictures of, of, of Britishness in key northern environments. So um, the North in inverted commas could be um, is, is a relative a relative term where we had people contributing ideas and and essays about Norway about the Arctic. We can't get much more north than that. Um, about Canada as as, a, as as Hollywood's north as its kind of uh, catch-all um, ventriloquized landscape. You know, it can be anywhere. That chapter from somebody working in Sheffield um, uh, looked at the way in which films like the um, the X Men films and I'm not sure of the Transformers films as well, but certainly the X Men X Men films are shot in 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 Canada with um, um, no apology for the um, the sort of the anonymity that's imposed on specific Canadian cities. Um, and also, the, from my perspective, the Northern Territory of Australia. How often that's used as a as a setting from classics like um, um, Chauvel's Jeddah in the, in the fifties, through to things like Rogue, you know, um, huge crocodiles uh, eating people, eating Americans, or trying to eat Americans anyway. That that kind of thing as 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 landmark and and also kind of um, stereotypical cinema. Um, also, Lerman's uh, Lerman's Australia, set in Northern Territory, as uh, Australia with a with a capital as the the, the perfect 
um, epitomizing film about that country. Yeah, there's such a, a wonderful dichotomy when it comes to Australian films, for me anyway. It feels like you're either in the city or you're in the outback, and there's mm, just yeah. such a, a wonderful difference between those. I mean, especially something like a, a walkabout or, you know, even uh, uh, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I mean, just the way that that landscape is portrayed and the way that it's that wild country, the wild west, as it were, just terrific stuff. There is a sense in which um, the, the the rural landscape or the the, the outback is is what cinema would 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 choose to show the, the thing that um, an international audience would expect to see, and yet it's it's often distant from the actual experience of of Australians themselves. And that's where something like Priscilla scores, I think, it, it suggests this alienness to Australians. Um, and, and I think that there is an element of this also in, um, something even as, as kind of generic a, a horror film as, as, as Rogue. And some of the Australian actors, uh, Rada Mitchell in that said, you know, there's a sense in which the, the Northern Territory is alien to us. You know, um, Australians, Australians live in uh, a handful of, or most Australians live in a handful of very large coastal cities. That's not the, um, uh, sort of, um, uh, Kakadu National Park isolation or the, the sort of the Arnhem Land kind of versions that you see in, in these these films where there's there's nobody, where the, the landscape is, is, is the character, the, the landscape is, is the, the nation, really. There are some arguments there, I think, about how national images are, are produced and, and circulated. The landscape comes first as, as the, the instantly recognizable property, literally sort of property that can be, that can be peddled uh, uh, around to international audiences, as opposed to something which, to come back to the suburbs point, you know, is, is a is an Australian suburb really any different from an American suburb? Um, one of the films that uh, was going into my my chapter was a film called Beautiful, which again is one which did terribly badly commercially. Although it's shot in an Australian suburb, there is a, a very conscious, I think, effort to make it look like um, America to sort of downplay that national cultural specificity. Um, it's noticeable that one of the most successful horror films, Australian horror films recently, The Babadook, who's, does that. You know, it looks like an American suburb. It doesn't look like an Australian one anymore. No, no. And even when I think about things from uh, New Zealand, like uh, Heavenly Creatures, I mean, that mm. feels so 1950s Americana, even though it's, uh, what, Christchurch? Yeah, it looks it looks like uh, it looks like Britain or it looks like America. They said you know, New Zealand looks like Britain in the fifties on a Sunday. That's that's kind of kind of I think the the way in which uh, that film that film works. I think and again, but but again to come back to the point about cars, I think it it works that way because of the extremity of what occurs within that environment. Subsequently, the the shock comes from the. Yeah, incongruity and, and violence that seems to arise out of these most innocuous circumstances. And that's, that's very like cars. You know, the first, the first two minutes of cars tell you exactly how dangerous the normal can be. Yeah, and that's the, the thing about cars that I like so much too, going back to that, is the whole idea of this insulated town where it, even though it's insulated, it has its own well, I should say because it's insulated, it has its own law and order and specific set of, of norms, which are just so twisted from everybody else. But to them, it's it's the way that life has to be. 
Yes, I think that's uh, something which I think is again to come back to your point about now how how specific, how national, or how how common and 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 um, actually sort of in, uh, unspecific uh, that kind of horror is. I think one of the, one of the things that is most interesting to me about that particular era of our Australian film is where you can see a very similar kind of bra- branding or a very similar kind of um, thematic brand of, of horror arising in, in the UK and the US at the same time. I mean, there's, there are things in Carl's A. Paris that look exactly like the original Texas Chainsaw or like Straw Dogs or, or like The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, and they also look like um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or, or The Stepford Wives. They look like American and, and and British versions of the same kind of rural, strange, isolated, sort of parochial environments, which are which are tainted by horrific abnormalities. So you could say, okay, well, does cars just represent a a, a particular Australian manifestation of something which is really current? In horror in the 70s, or is or is it just accidental that these films come out together? I I don't think it is. I think there's there are some strong um, influences and 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 similar consistencies in terms of whiteness, in terms of of masculinity, and in terms of sort of social um, dissatisfaction and 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 anxiety about agency and 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 law and the sort of straightforward conformity that these films. Um, bring together, and th- those sorts of anxieties run through the the small, disempowered, unheroic characters that you see in Straw Dogs and in Cars A Paris, I think. And I think it's also interesting that that Weir doesn't leave that alone. I think you can see just as Fearless um, looks back to the last wave, you can see how Cars looks forward to the Truman Show. The same sense of somebody not quite sure what's going on with thing, with an agenda just out of eyeline again. No real control, no real say over their environment. Um, and that's uh, that's something which um, echoes back 20-odd uh, uh, years, in 20, nearly 30 years in, in Weir's career, even to the extent that um, Terry Camilleri from Cars appears in a cameo in uh, The Truman Show. There's a conscious echo there of this sense of 70s cinema actually never going away. So mapping cinematic norths and um, filmerbia. Filmerbia. Yes, that's a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Screening the suburbs. Those are those are both available now. No, filmerbia will be out sometime in in 2017. We're literally just at the, the stage of, of getting it into production right now. Um, mapping mapping cinematic north came out uh, in the UK anyway in in uh, November last year with Peter Lang as a, within their series of, of sort of modern studies of, of place. So, yes, Filmobio, all being well, will be out by the midpoint of, of, of this year. You are a, a very busy man. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good, to, it's good to stay busy. How did uh, you and your brother decide to get into the film business? I put it down to the fact that 
we were Boy Scouts when we were young. And in Australia and in England, I don't know whether it's true in America, they had a thing that they used to put on every year called the Gang Show, which was basically Boy Scouts singing and dancing, a sort of vaudeville show, mainly in front of parents, much like a school concert. So in Victoria, where we were brought up, Melbourne, a hundred or so young Boy Scouts would put on this show, costume, grease paint, the whole thing. And we'd do five performances. When we began, we were in a little community hall at SAT 200. By the time I actually left the show, we were in a big 3,000-seater selling it out. It, it just kind of struck a nerve at the time. So very young, and I'm talking age 12 through 15, 18, we once a year smelt the grease paint, heard the roar of the crowd, and had a, you know, a, a wonderful time. Quite separately, my, my father had always been interested in the arts. And so, for example, he took us as very young kids to see Barry Humphrey's first performances as a satirist. This is, you know, literally, uh, you know, 60 years ago. I don't know whether you know Barry Humphreys, but he's a brilliant, brilliant Australian satirist who now has a you know international career. So, and we'd go to the film festival back in the day, and we'd watch all these you know black and white continental films they were called. So we're exposed to things that a lot of people weren't young and in that society, you know, because it was still a very conservative. Melbourne was a very pretty small town conservative and we were blessed with a father who had a more liberal if that's the word view of things so the idea of our career in the film industry wasn't complete madness i left school when i was 16 uh, so did my brother he went straight into television through contacts that he'd made in gang show and he became a props boy etc i went into believe it or not window decorating and uh retail design, then into advertising and finished up producing ad, live ads on television on a show, that my, a kid's show that my brother was working on. So come age 17, 18, we're already in the business of television and advertising. I then got a job with Fred Skepsy, who went on to become a, a famous director, um, when I was 18 as a production manager for his fledgling commercial TV production company. Again, by 18 now, I'm in the film industry, my brother's in the television business, and it's absolutely normal. We weren't making great money, but we were having a good time. Then, this is still in Melbourne, Jim moved to Adelaide, I moved to Sydney. I decided that if I really wanted to have a career, Sydney was the place to be. And so I left Fred, but whilst I was there, I'd met a guy who'd worked for Fred as a production manager, and he said, I'm going to make a movie one day, and I want you to work on it. So lo and behold, I joined a big doc, uh, government documentary unit called the Commonwealth Film Unit in Sydney when I was 20. And age 21, this guy out of the blue rang up and said, okay, I'm going to make this movie. And it was Michael Powell's Age of Consent starring Helen Mirren and James Mason. So now I'm 22 and I'm on a feature film on Dunk Island on the Pacific, in the Barrier Reef with Helen Mirren, who was 18. Uh, and James Mason, you know, who's the loveliest, nicest, gentlemanly sort of guy, and Mickey Powell, who was a prick, but we're making a movie. So then just happens stance, 
uh, a couple of films were made in Australia, Waking Fright, Ted Kotcheff, Jim worked on as an assistant director. Ned Kelly came down. And I was uh, with Mick Jagger. I was the location manager. And my brother was the assistant director. And so we had to move Mick Jagger around and do all that stuff. Then there's another thing called Adam's Woman that I worked on with Andrew Keir. And when the government decided to put money into the film industry, we were amongst a handful of people who had actually worked on feature films. So meanwhile, we'd maintained friendships and relationships back up with the people of the Commonwealth Film Unit, amongst whom was Peter Weir. Because that particular um, organisation, the Commonwealth Film Unit, um, was the breeding ground for quite a, a number of talented people, Peter Weir being the most preeminent of them all. So when he decided, we decided we were going to make a vampire film starring in a, a famous Australian pop scene called Johnny Farnham. It was called Johnny the Vampire. And we asked Peter to direct it, and he said yes, and we had the script. And we nearly got the finance, then we, it fell over. Then Peter said, oh, I've got this script. And he gave us cards that ate Paris. And we said, well, hell, why not? And we applied for, for money for this brand new organization called the Australian Film Development Corporation. And lo and behold, age 27 or something, they gave us money. And they gave us like $180,000. It cost $230,000, I think, to make. And so we made it. Really, one, never having produced a, a feature film before and really not had produced much at all. Peter had not made a feature film. And, of course, back in the day, in the 70s, the budget was sufficient for us to shoot for, what is it, four weeks, five weeks, something like that, uh, which we shot on location out in the outback at the time of our lives. Now, we didn't quite understand the process or really anything. We just thought, hell, why not? And interestingly... Quite a number of the producers that we'd worked on on these big films had not been very competent, and they weren't very nice people. They were just like horrible shits that would come in from America or England or wherever and lord it over everybody. I mean, for example, the assistant director on Age and uh, Ned Kelly, Andrew Greaves, used to get on his megaphone when we were shooting, and he'd say, "Run, you fucking Aussie cunts! I want things to go faster." And he'd do this routinely every day. We'd all kind of grit our teeth. It was, it was like slave <laughs> slavery. But we, so we thought, no, there's another way of doing this. And um, so we had a much more sort of um, team spirit. And, and we're all sort of in it together. So on, uh, on Cars A Paris, for example, my brother, I think, was production manager, and I was the assistant director, as well as being producers. And so it was real indie filmmaking and, you know, no one got paid much money. I think we got paid $3,000. We paid ourselves for the, for the whole job each, I think. Not a lot of money, but we just did it. Why not? And then, of course, you know, the next thing Peter said, what about keeping it hanging wrong? We said, why not? And, and, and went on and became a big hit. Well, whereas Carte Paris wasn't the th hit we thought it was going to be. But, of course, we didn't know what we were talking about. You were on some really pioneering uh, Australian films. I mean, even before you became a, a producer, just doing some of the assistant directing work that you were doing, like with uh, Alvin Purple or The Man from Hong yeah. Kong. I mean, these these are you know, legendary movies now. <laughs> yes, it's, it's funny. I, you know, it, it was really part because there was a very small group of people who had any skill base, and I was lucky enough to be amongst them. Yeah, you know, Alvin Purple, I was the assistant director and production manager, and it was a case of 
we've got, you know, whatever it was, $180,000, we've got to make this in, you know, four weeks, let's go. And so I, you know, would just jump in there and tip kick everybody's ass and we'd get it done. Man from Hong Kong, similar situation, bigger budget, bigger ambition, but, you know, we had to get it made. And I remember by the end of the first week, we were like five days over schedule. So I had to sit down with Brian and, and figure out how we're going to get this damn thing made. And we did. And, and, but it was all really luck, you know. And, of course, you know, Brian Tracy, he's a very clever filmmaker. And Tim Burstall directed Alan Bell. He's a good filmmaker too. But we're all learning together. We didn't really know how to get it done. But because we didn't know, we just did it. It was, you know, the results... Were, were pretty good considering the complete absence of any sort of, you know, real knowledge and experience. There was no studio system. There was no, nothing really um, existed anymore because the Australian film industry before then was in, back in the 30s and even then it was tiny. So none of those people survived through to our generation and so we were pretty much starting from ground zero and because we knew nothing, we just took on these ludicrous <laughs> challenges and just said, well, why not? You know? And had fun doing it. Am I completely off base when I say that Wake and Fright and Walkabout really kind of helped inject the Australian film industry? Uh, yeah, no, I don't think that's correct to say because our perspective as industry back in those days was these were outside films. These were kind of foreign films coming into Australia. They're a great place uh, thing to work on. We would kind of learn a little bit. But if you're an assistant director on, on a, you know, Wake and Fright, you're really not learning how to produce a film. You're just watching, in that case, Ted Kotcheff direct a film. And Ted's a very good director, but that doesn't teach you much about producing. So we got the sort of experience on the set and we could see, you know, what a call sheet meant, what a, a production schedule looked like but we didn't really know how to kind of put it together. And of course, by the way, some of the people behind some of these films weren't all that competent, as I said. For example, on uh, Ned Kelly, Joe Losey's son, Gavlik Losey, was the production manager and associate producer, and he was meant to be this boy genius, and of course he was an idiot. And I remember the, the production office was a caravan that we used to tow from location to location, and he used to prepare a schedule by writing out scenes on scraps of paper. And then if you walked into the caravan and the wind blew, his schedule went out the window, literally. Whereas we found in America some years later the, what became known as the strip system where you, I don't know whether you've ever seen those boards, they used to be folding cardboard boxes sort of thing with these strips that were, had, were identified by colour and you could write in what actors were in each scene and whether it was a day-night exterior, you know, special requirements, etc. That's now transmogrified into a, a, a scheduling system that's on a computer, but you're still using a slug that contains the essential ingredients of a, of a scene and shuffling them into a cohesive schedule. So going back to your question, I didn't work on uh, Walkabout. We went, oh, isn't that good? We saw the film... It was kind of flawed, but yeah, good. We saw Wake and Fright, and I, I, I'll never forget, I saw Wake and Fright sitting beside a guy who was going to make Careful He Might Hear You with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. 
and he was a famous American musical director. Who, who directed Camelot? He also d- directed another famous film, uh, Camelot. Was it Camelot? Yes, Camelot. And Paints of Wagons. Who directed that? Joshua Logan. Josh Logan, yeah. Okay. I was working as Josh Logan's assistant when he was trying to put this film together. And we went to see together Wake in Fright. And he and his lovely wife were absolutely appalled by Wake in Fright. He nearly vomited because he was an effete New York theatre person kind of guy. And shooting kangaroos and this horrible violence just would appall him. And then the day after, I was in the room when he got the phone call saying, I'm sorry, Richard and Elizabeth aren't doing the movie. Oh, my God, it was a horrible moment. So, again, we were there often when crazy shit went down, and that's when you learn to be a producer, when you see shit happening and you see what people do to deal with the shit, sometimes badly and sometimes well. He was very dignified throughout the whole thing, and, and we'd remain friends for most of his life. But it was kind of, in a sense, the end of his career. He never really made another movie. That was the big one, and he didn't make it, and that was the end of it. So I guess we were <laughs> exposed to the vagaries of it all and the jeopardy of it all. But looking back to your question, so Wake Fight wasn't a big hit. Walkabout wasn't a big hit. Not bad movies, but they didn't really change things. In a way, the change they affected was for us to say, because uh, both of those films, for various reasons, were pretty bruising experiences for the Australian crews that worked on them, because, again, there was this arrogance from Nick Rogue or Ted Kotcheff, etc. And so when we, Australians, got a chance to make it, it was kind of, well, fuck you, we're going to make our movies a different way and we're just going to go make them and, you know, you know, you, we thought you knew what you were doing. I mean, when we were making Ned Kelly with Mick Jagger, we thought this is going to be an absolutely brain-snapping hit. Mick Jagger playing the quintessential uh, revolutionary Bush Ranger. This is, this is it. We make the movie, great photography, bad movie. And we're like, oh, shit, what a pity. <laughs> we spent, you know, five months in the, out in the outback freezing our asses off. And it's a bad movie. So we, it kind of gave us confidence, but weirdly. Because we thought, well, they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And by the way, we don't like the way they do it, so we'll do it. Now, I keep on banging on about <clears throat> how wonderful and collaborative that it was back in the day. And it was. We were all friends, all the filmmakers. The crew, we all pretty much used many of the same crew from movie to movie. And we used to say there's only really one and a half crews in Australia that can make a movie. And we all go to each other's opening night and we'd, you know, congratulate each other when things were successful and when things fail, we could commiserate, et cetera. That's gone because just numerically, there's five or six hundred people in Australia who call themselves film producers. Back in the day, there was half a dozen. And as I said, we were friends and we, we helped each other make movies. You know, so for example, I don't know whether it was a film called Caddy, but... I was first assistant on Caddy getting that made when uh, Penny Hangrock went through the roof. And so I'm on the set and I get a phone call saying, you know, we grossed X thousand dollars last night. And so it was kind of weird. And, you know, uh, there I'm in the driving rain or whatever it was trying to get a shot. And meanwhile, 
I, I had to do it because I had to make some money because I hadn't made any money making <laughs> picnic hang rock. So, but, so we're we're all in, in in it together, and we help each other and learn from each other. It's funny you're kind of on what I would consider the uh, anti wake and fright sunstruck. Just always seemed like it was almost like an answer film to Wake and Fright with the teacher moving out to the outback and it being a, a pretty darn good time as opposed to uh, what Gary Bond went through in Wake and Fright. That's right. And I've completely forgotten Sunstruck, a good detective work. That was a classic English view of what would happen in Australia if this sort of circumstance went down. Starring a, a famous uh, Englishman of the day, Harry Seacombe. And who else coming? But it really didn't work because it, it was meant to be a, a you know kind of fish out of water story, and of course it, it it was. But the filmmakers were a fish fish out of water as well, and they didn't quite know how to capture that actual feeling of dislocation and put it on screen. And so there was again a lost opportunity. So often, looking at these films, we'd look at them and go, "Gee, it could have been better." Then of course it was like. How could it have been better? How, how you know? And uh, you know, I, uh, I, I tell this story often that on Cars and Eight Paris, read the script, said, "Okay, let's just make the movie." And at the end, of course, we discovered we made a film without a real ending to it, and it's, it was somewhat and unsatisfying. It didn't. It wasn't really a hit. We thought it was going to be. It wasn't. So when Picnic arrived. I thought to myself, I'm gonna when I'm reading a script, I'm gonna think about these scenes, and if I don't, if I'm worried about a scene, I'm actually gonna say something. Whereas on Cars Eight Paris, I didn't know what to say, and so I didn't say anything. And lo and behold, we'd see the film, the scene when it was shot and cut. And you know, it didn't work. Oh shit! I didn't think it was a very good scene. Fuck. So next time, say something, Hal. So I forced myself because Peter Weir, by the way, is a very uh, articulate, persuasive guy, I forced myself to say things like, look, I don't know about this scene. I don't know what's wrong with it, but there's something wrong. I don't know what to say, but it's just, it doesn't work for me. And be embarrassed by the fact that I didn't know what was wrong, but there was something wrong. And surprisingly, often with someone else to say, yeah, there is something. What is it? So we'd sit down together and figure out what it was, and we could start to fix scripts and scenes before we shot them rather than after we shot them. So it was a kind of, as I said, a growing confidence and, and, and forcing ourselves to, to articulate our, uh, our concerns, even if we didn't know the words to use. And so, you know, that was you know, part of our growth process because most of the filmmakers in Australia didn't come from you know, intellectual backgrounds. They, you know, they weren't sort of art students and lawyers and architects. You know, it was fairly, very middle class. And, you know, we had reasonable educations, but we weren't all college graduates and things like that. You know, we were just, you know, willing to get get down and dirty and get things done, you know. And, of course, we fell in love with movies and would watch movies and go to the Sydney Film Festival and all that sort of stuff. And in you know, the early days before making cars at Paris, I would be part of this group of mad film fans and we'd sit around talking about movies and what was good and what was bad. But of course, we didn't really know what we were talking about. We were just talking about our instinctive reaction. Oh, he's great. He's stupid. You know, he's bad. She's great. You know, that stuff. So there was not no real attempt to 
approach it with the sort of depth that, for example, you clearly do. And I guess that would be the reason why a lot of Australian films don't have a lot of intellectual depth of, of, of the sort that you see fairly routinely in, in Scandinavian films and, and uh, French films and, and Europe, you know, what we call European films. We tended to be <coughs> much more straightforward storytellers. Looking back, you know, I, I, I tend to kind of shuffle my career into two piles, successes and failures. And, you know, the, the success criteria tends to be financial success. I don't kid myself that critical success equals success because it doesn't. You know, if you're a film producer, you know, okay, you get some nice reviews, but that doesn't help you get your next movie made so much. Uh, you know, I, I have to put Cars at Paris in the fail pile because whilst it was our first and it got a bit of attention, it didn't really connect. And, you know, there's a, <laughs> I had, I did public speaking occasionally. I did a public uh, a speech a couple of years ago and a question and answer at the end and some guy got up and said, Cars at Paris, what were you thinking? That was the worst movie I've ever seen. And so there's people that just hate it. And for them, it just didn't work. And I've got to accept that and understand that. And I can't say, oh, that we've got great reviews. That's meaningless to that person. He didn't like the movie, you know? And so you've got to, you know, I have to kind of be tough with my criteria, I think. And, so, and, and by the way, you know, I've done uh, 25 productions over 40 years. And roughly speaking, my success rate is about 51%, which is kind of average. <laughs> about half of them have been successful and the other half weren't. That's okay. I learned from the ones that weren't so good. In fact, generally speaking, you learn more from the failures than you do from the successes because the failures are painful and uh, they're public. And, and people remind you about their failures for years afterwards. So you kind of, the, the casting, for example, Carsey Paris was Terry Campbell Leary, nice bloke and all that sort of stuff, but he's completely wrong. He was completely unsympathetic. And if we got someone who was a little bit more sympathetic, we might have been able to sell that kind of crazy story a little bit better. But we didn't, you know? That's something I learned from that, you know, try and, I don't mean necessarily, by the way, good looking. I just mean someone who gives you some sort of uh, empathetic connection to, you know, and he, he didn't do that. You talked a little bit about how your relationship with Peter Weir changed once you got onto Picnic at the Hanging Rock. Did it evolve more when you went on to the last wave with him? Yes, it did. Without a doubt, Peter is a great talent. And what did surprise me was that we knew he was a great talent when we were working with him on documentaries, etc. at the Commonwealth Film. Then when we made Carsey Paris, we thought for a moment it was going to be a big hit because it was audacious. But what astonished us was how quickly the really strong, good critics in Europe at the Cannes Film Festival recognized him as a talent. Just right straight away, they decided that Peter Weir was a major force to be reckoned with. And I applaud them all for that, because by the way, they were right. But I was shocked at how quickly, easy is the wrong word, they recognized the talent. And... When you look at the, the two films, Carse Paris and then Pinky Hang Rock, his growth as a filmmaker, the level of sophistication in storytelling, photography, design, you know, everything, performances, 
It was a, a huge leap. And then the last wave was another big leap. And then um, um, we did Gallipoli right after that, another leap, and then the Year of Living Dangerously. I mean, wow, look at the progress over a period of six, seven years. You know, what a talent. And applause to the, to the critics who recognise that. Because there's a lot of people in Australia who do tend to see it. And, and so, of course, when you're working closely, when you're all kind of uh, kids together making your first movie, it's one thing. But when someone like Peter Weir develops right beside you an international reputation, and by the way, you don't, it changes things, you know. It's just something you have to kind of, you know, he became a superstar. And, you know, he's never really looked back. And he always had an enormous sense of confidence in his work and his ability, which is reinforced time and time and time again. And and when you look at his career, he's made very few bad films or even very few unsuccessful films. And even the unsuccessful films are usually not bad films. They just weren't particularly successful commercially. So he had a remarkable career. And, of course, therefore, at some point, you just finish up in his wake, waving you know, to him as he just roars over the horizon. And that's what happened. And so we're no longer close friends. We rarely talk. We have nothing to do with each other. Good luck to him. No resentment, no bitterness, no nothing. It's just like he was a superstar and off he went, you know, and uh, good luck to him. When it comes to that success and failure pile that you were talking about earlier, where would Razorback fit into that? Good question, Fabian. Because it didn't really succeed commercially. Again, big expectations. Thought, this is it. We were thinking about writing a sequel. I was so ludicrously confident. There's a lot of mistakes I can see in that, that movie in terms of execution, the, the physicality of the beast and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, Russell Mulcahy, it was, is a visual genius. He's got almost perfect recall of every shot he's seen in any movie scene. He's just got one of those memories. He can construct a sequence unlike anyone else pretty much in the world. The, the shots, etc. But unfortunately, this is his first film. He had this perfect sequence in his mind, which he didn't communicate. So we go out shoot a sequence and we shoot what we thought was the sequence and we'd finish shooting and move on to the next sequence and discover there was actually three more shots that he needed to make the sequence work. And they were, they had, we hadn't shot them. <laughs> and often we had no chance of getting those three extra shots because the set had been struck, the actor had gone back home or something like that. And because he wouldn't shoot a scene in its entirety, like a lot of directors do, shoot the whole scene and go cover the close-ups, cover do the reverses, etc. He'd shoot, it like a jigsaw puzzle, and shoot bit, 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 bit. And so we put together a second unit that would go around trying to catch these shots that he hadn't shot, but we couldn't cut their material into Russell's material because it didn't look like his material. He had such a unique vision. So there's flaws in it in storytelling, visual storytelling terms. The editing's pretty amazing. In the day, there was like 1,800 cuts, I think, in that movie, and the neg cutter, because back in the day, used to cut negatives, etc. You had a heart attack, and they said they'd never seen so many edits in a single movie back in the day, right? And that sort of cut rate is routine in any 
movie these days, but back in those days, unbelievable. A good concept, not particularly well executed, I didn't think. And the other thing is that I discovered making that movie that I actually don't like violence. There's quite a lot of violence, and it was pretty violent. And in fact, we had to, for video release, make an even more violent version. And I found that I was just kind of uncomfortable with it all. And I so I, I whilst I'm proud of it, like everything I've made, I, I, I look back and I say, eh, you know, it's not my favourite movie. I'm, you know, it's pretty good, and I'm glad Russell got a start. But the end result wasn't as good, I think, as it perhaps could have have been and should have been. But strange things happen. For example. Dean Semler shot the director of photography, Dean Semler, shot Razorback. And he was in Fiji or something. He told me the story. And the phone rang. And someone said, This is Steven Spielberg. Can I speak to Dean Semler? And he said, Oh, fuck off. I hung up. And then the phone rang again. Hello, this is Steven Spielberg. Can I speak to So he took the call. And it was indeed Steven Spielberg who said, I, I, I want to track you down. I want to find out how you put two moons in the one shot. It wasn't a special effect. And what it was, was just a big circular reflector board. And it just been a bit of kind of surreal stuff that Russell had stuck in, which is his wonky, or he used to do surreal stuff. But they kind of struck up a relationship, Dean and Spielberg. And as a result, he got, Dean got dances with wolves and, uh, of course, won an Academy Award, I think, didn't he? Razorback was a bit of a launch pad for Dean and, and others, you know, he's, uh, because Russell does have a unique ability. And I'm glad that I was there and I'm glad we did it. But, you know, is it the best movie? No. I'm not going to go through every single thing on your filmography, but I did want to ask you about one more, which was The Sum of Us and how you got involved with that one. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Well, um, it must have been Kevin Dowling. Uh, or maybe David Stevens. Okay. David Stevens was an old acquaintance of mine, a very successful writer and playwright. He wrote the play The Some of Us. And an Ameri- a Chicago-based lawyer, Corky Kessler, and Kevin Dowling, a New York stage director, um, who had directed the original stage play to considerable acclaim in New York, decided to develop it as a feature film. And when the play had been on in New York, it was quite a success, and a lot of big stars came to see the production and came backstage and said, congratulations, everybody. Paul Newman, Tom Cruise, I, I can't remember the list of names, but anyway, and every one of them said, I'd love to be in the movie. So they wrote the screenplay, um, I read it, and I'd cry when I read it. I thought, it was such a beautiful bit of writing. So I thought, let's make the movie. And Paul Newman wants to do it. <laughs> so we then spent, I think, three years pursuing every single possible lead who declared any interest in the, in the production. All of these superstars, and I'm serious, Tom Cruise, um, six months, no, Paul Newman, same thing. Every big actor you could fucking possibly think of, we went after. They could thought about it, and of course their agents said, don't do it, and they didn't do it. So this went on and on and on. We got absolutely nowhere. Meanwhile, out of the blue, you get a phone call from Russell Crowe, want to come and see you. So he comes to see me, and he says, I want to be 
in The Same of Us. Now, by the way, this is the only actor in my entire career who's ever buttonholed me, insisted upon a meeting, and said, I want to be in a, a play a particular role. So you've got to credit Russell for that. And he, by the way, he'd just done that uh, skinhead movie, the name of which I've forgotten. Romper Stomper. Thank you, yeah. And of course, like all actors, having done that, he wanted to do the exact opposite, which is to play a gay, you know? So I said, look, thanks very much. But at that point in time, he was nobody. But I arranged for him to meet Kevin Dowling when he was in New York. Uh, yes. No, they went, met in Boston or something. But anyway, they said, oh, yeah, okay. So I decided that we'd try and make it with a much lower budget um, in Australia with Kevin Dowling directed, but he, because he was an American, to co-direct it with an Australian cinematographer called Jack Burton. And, so we, and I said, look, fuck it. Why don't we just use Russell Crowe and Jack Thompson? We can get them. They're affordable. We'll reconstruct the budget, $3.3 million, something like that. Let's just do that rather than hanging for all of these big stars, I'll never say yes. So we just said, fuck it, okay, let's do it. And we did it. Uh, and, you know, it's a film that I'm proud of. It didn't make much money, but it was, it, it literally did change people's lives. You know, I got a, a lovely card from a guy saying, thank you for changing my life. I'm gay. I took my father. I'm hairdresser. I'm gay. I took my father to see the movie. We watched it together. Then I took him to coffee afterwards and told him I was gay and we cried and he was completely accepting and thank you very much. Now that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. So does it end up in the success or the failures pile? (laughs) I put that under success, on success. What are you working on these days? We're semi-retired now. Where I'm speaking to you, looking out on the Barrier Reef, we're up in far north Queensland. Um, we've got two kids, or well, three kids, two of them in America, one's in New York. She's a, an interior decorator. She's got a four-year-old son. And we've got a one-and-a-half-year-old uh, daughter, granddaughter in Los Angeles with uh, another daughter who's there. And... So, you know, priorities changed. I had a, um, a cancer scare. So we're, we've, we're now really um, mentoring, consulting, executive producing. I, you know, never say never, but we don't currently plan to make anything in particular. But we've got two, three possibilities, one of which is literally over, over this last weekend. So they've gone, wow, look out, everybody loves it. Let's go, let's go. So... But you never know. Um, so we, we don't have the urgent application to what's the next thing, what's the next thing that we used to have. Um, you know, we're, we're just enjoying ourselves. Also, we left the film industry. Uh, some of us are the last movie that I made. Um, and we've been in television since then. So what's that? That was 93, wasn't it? So we spent a lot of time in television and made a lot of television, thousands of hours of it and loved doing it. And I used to worry about television being this sort of monster that ate you, but came to really enjoy the process because you're, if you do it properly, you're running or creating a long running business. And, you know, I, I did a cop show that ran for 580 episodes, you know, 12 years or something. 
And so people put their kids through school working on the show. So that, that's very gratifying, you know? And uh, you can, you know, you can grow up with these people, you can train them and they learn and, and each episode gets better. It's good fun. So to, I, I found television more rewarding because particularly these days, feature films are just so hard to finance. And the, the market for Australian films has kind of evaporated or shrunk. You know, by the way, would you call Mad Max an Australian film? Probably not anymore. Whilst, of course, it was made by Australians, it was made in Africa with a whole range of wonderfully talented people, fabulous movie, loved it to death. But it cost a couple of hundred million dollars and, and it's kind of, you either make that or you make movies for one or two, three million dollars. Like, that's fucking hard. And then you go out the wrong week and get smashed and it's like, ah, Jesus, this is hard work. So whereas television... If you do it right, as I said, you can do, keep on doing it. Uh, we just did a show that we shot up here on the Barrier Reef called the Sea Patrol, which is about the Royal Australian Navy. We made 58 episodes in, in five years and had the best time uh, making it and learned a tremendous amount doing it, tremendously t- uh, technically challenging because the entire series was set at sea in a Navy patrol boat. So how do you make that? No one's ever done that before, you know? So we figured out how to do it, and working with a great bunch of people, we did it, and it was a good show. So, you know, I, I, I do like the process. I don't like waiting for the phone to ring or waiting for the actor to come back and tell you whether he's going to do it or not. That, it's a pain in the ass. You know, we, we, we take a different view about the whole process. Unless we get really excited and it's really possible, eh, you know, too hard. We'll just enjoy our semi-retirement. What was that like for you seeing Mad Max Fury Road and basically seeing the car from the car that ate Paris in there? <laughs> Look, I loved it. You know, I, I thought uh, it was a, a, you know, George Miller, again, you look at the progress he's made as a filmmaker. Unbelievable. I was there at the first public screening of Mad Max, the original, and, you know, there's two, these two scuffy guys, George and Byron, Get up on stage and oh, the fucking movie, you, 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 you'll get fucked, sort of thing. They're very aggressive. We were just slammed when we saw that movie. We were just like, holy shit, who made this? Where did they come from? Because they were right outside the whole filmmaking culture that I was talking about. These were just real renegades, these guys. George was a doctor, for Christ's sake. And he just made this movie and blew me away. And so looking at it, I go, wow, what a great piece of work originally and what a great development on a great concept, a genius. Um, the, as for the you know, similarities, oh, I don't see it so much. Some people do. I, I, I think George would laugh if I said that to him because George is George. I mean, he's, he's the man. You know, He's not going to imagine or attribute anything to that other than his own brain, you know, he's, he's that guy. So I don't think it really had a lot to do with it. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure you've heard the story, Peter told the story, but when we um, took Carse Paris to uh, Cannes back in the day in 74, Roger Corman saw the movie or his, his scouts saw the movie and we got the word, Roger wants to buy it for America. So I sat in a screening with Roger, and Peter wasn't there, and he said, yeah, I love it, I'm going to buy it. 
We then started a torturous 18-month process negotiating with him. And then right on the final day when the contract that had been negotiated arrived, his new head of production, Barbara Boyle, rang up and said, we're out. By the way, our lawyer all the way through said, I don't trust these people. I don't think they're going to do this. He said, oh, no, it's Roger Cormier. He said he's going to do it. Look out, Michael. And so we hung in being naive film filmmakers. Meanwhile, Roger made Death Race 2000, which did feature cars with spikes, etc. And it's my view, as is Peter's, that he ripped us off. And it was a deliberate process because that was the end of Cars Day Paris. It never really survived after that expectation wasn't realised. And so if anybody ripped it off, it was Roger, not George Moore. Hal, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real treat talking with you. Great, mate. Well, it's nice to talk to you. I admire your depth of knowledge about my uh, checkered career. And, uh, uh, you know, the industry needs people like you that really care about movies and care about the detail of them and, and have the ability to compare them one to each other and place them in a timeline. Because, you know, there's I, I, I don't. You know, I'm, I'm very much a tomorrow guy. I rarely look back and rarely reflect and really that tend to analyze or think it through. It's, I think it's a waste of time. And you can, it's also a rabbit hole. You can kind of disappear up your own ass very, very quickly. That phrase, you're only as good as your last movie isn't true, you're only as good as your next movie. What we found out, of course, is that it doesn't matter how successful the last one was. It's the next one that you want money for and gonna, people are going to make their own judgment. So it's, it's always been and always will be a struggle. And as I said, very dangerous to spend too much time thinking, talking about what you've done, because it doesn't matter. Leave that to others, people like you. Yeah, where were you at in your career when that when you were in that? The way I got it was uh, I did an improvise for a, a film called Drugs and the Law by another director, and Peter just happened to um, see the screen test and wanted to meet me, and he, he originally put me in another film, which didn't happen, but then he told me this was going to happen, Cousin was going to happen, and he asked me... Uh, uh, if I would do that, so uh, and I, I was pretty lucky because he, you know, it's um, unusual that um, that you could pick that quickly, you know. But he liked what he saw, you know. Before you were in movies, you were doing. Um, were you doing comedy with the uh, what is it? Auntie Jack, is that right? Yeah, the Auntie Jack show. Uh, yeah, I did some television. Uh, I did uh, um, a show. Uh, called the Arnie Jack Show, and that was with Graham Bond, and it was uh, it was kind of cutting edge comedy that was happening in Australia at the time, and Gary McDonald was in that as well, and he came out later and did his own show called the uh, Norman Gunston Show, which uh, which was quite uh, popular, but it was very off the wall comedy, and it was really crazy stuff, but it was really f- a lot of fun. Yeah, I tried to track down some of those episodes a few years ago for a project I was doing, and it's tough. It doesn't seem like that's available anymore. No, it is. There's a lot of early stuff that was made, uh, shot back then, which is very difficult to get hold of. I did a series called Number 96, where I played a, a, a guy who dealt heroin to school kids, which um, 
wasn't a nice part, but still, it was. Uh, it kind of made people look, uh, you know, look up and, and think. Uh, and it's difficult to get the footage for that stuff too, as well. Back in those days. So you've been working with Peter Weir for a long time. I've seen you pop up in a in a lot of his films. Well, a few of yeah, yeah. I did a thing called Luke's Kingdom with him, and I also did the Truman Show with him. And so what was he like to work with on the Cars That Ate People or the Cars That Ate Paris? The Cars That Ate Paris, yeah. Um, did you see the Cars That Ate People version? I've seen both of them now, and I have to say that I definitely prefer the original. Yeah, me too. I'll talk about that in a minute. When I met Peter, you know, he asked me to, he asked me to do another film which uh, about a, a, a rock star and um, – and uh, a vampire, and uh, John Farnham was going to play the rock star, and Olivia Newton-John was going to play the vampire, and and I was going to play John's manager, but that didn't happen. And then I didn't hear from him for a while. Then I um, uh, I, I went to the screening of the dr- anti drug films that I did called Drugs and the Law, and Keith. Now the director said that Peter's been trying to get hold of me. So I, I went over to Film Australia, or it was called the, the Commonwealth Film Unit then, and I uh, saw him and he said, well, the film wasn't happening, but there was another film that were, that he was going to do called The Cars at A Paris. And uh, and we talked about it and he, he said he'd like me to play the lead in that. And I said, well, we talked. And I said, yeah, absolutely. But uh, I, And I asked him when he was going to shoot it. And he said, oh, in about seven, eight months. And I said, I'm due to go overseas next week for 10 months to do a, 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 a tour with a show called Disney on Parade. Uh, we're going to tour European and Brazil. And uh, he said, well, we'll wait for you. And he did. So... Um, um, that was that, but I formed a really good relationship from from then on. When I got back from um, South America, I went. We, we within a week we started shooting the Paris at Paris. Peter is the kind of director that you work with. You don't work for. He's uh, he's uh, the gentlest director I've ever worked with, and I'd um, at the drop of a hat I'd work for him again. No problem. I love how meek your character is but yeah you seem very driven at the same time yeah uh a european magazine called sight and sound and they called the character a pathetic clown and i think that's what he was really you know he was uh he was an innocent in many ways but he was um uh he was uh, ignorant to what was really you know or innocent to what was going on until he, until he realized some things. So it's like he kind of grew up a bit. What was your relationship like with uh, uh, the mayor on that one? John Mannion was a, is a, is a great Australian a- actor, and he, he always has been, but um, he was uh, one of those actors that um, really liked his warming. But as soon as the cameras were rolling, he was on the money. He was amazing to work with. He was really there every moment. He was a, a good actor, a fine actor of the time. Oh, he's not with us anymore. But he's uh, he was a uh, he he'd done he'd he'd done some a lot of work in England as well in the early days. And uh, I don't know if he worked in America, but I know he worked in England as well as the early films in Australia. It was interesting. Cars at Paris was the the first 
Panavision film to be made by Australians, and it was the one that kind of broke out uh, and got Australia involved internationally in the film market. Him and uh, um, Chips Rafferty was another one, another actor of that ilk. Um, they just uh, worked all the time when films were being made in Australia by Australians. They, and and as for, of course, after Cars Day at Paris, there was a, a whole new era of Australian films that, that had started up. Yeah, one of those being, of course, Mad Max and then later Mad Max 2. And yeah. it almost seems like Cars Day Paris was almost a little bit of a precursor of that with the kind of car culture that was going on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it kind of started off a lot of stuff. It was interesting when um, it was picked up um, by Roger Corman at Cannes. He was going to release it. And then he, he kind of put it on the shelf for a while. And we didn't, nothing was happening. And then all of a sudden, the film came out called Death Race 2000. And then um, and a lot of the ideas from Cars were, were in that. And uh, which kind of didn't make us very happy. But anyway, and then he eventually re-edited Cars and called it The Cars That Eat People uh, and released it, um, dubbing my character, make, making him an American. And I, uh, I didn't know that was happening. When I got to America in uh, well, was it 1980, I went to a screening of it the old Fox Cinema on, uh, on Lincoln in um, Marina del Rey there in Santa Monica. I, I, could, I couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, the character's different. You know, he's speaking with a different accent and his, his intention was different and it was uh, strange. I, I, I could only watch half of it and I had to leave because it was, it was totally changed from what Peter had done, you know. Well, that must have been pretty surreal for you to see someone else's or to hear someone else's voice coming out of your mouth. Yeah, it was. It was. It was really strange. And um, But there was nothing that um, that the Australian producers or Peter could do about it at the time. Eventually, Peter brought it back and released it in its uh, uh, original form. It created quite a following, actually, uh, the original film. That must have been quite a, a big deal for you to go from working in television and, and doing what you've done so far and then being here you are the lead in this movie. Yeah, I was uh, really surprised. But, um, uh, and, you know, and, and you have all these fantasies when you, when you do a film and you, you know, all of a sudden you're starring in a film and, and you think, oh, well, um, I, I'm made from here on in. It's going to be smooth sailing. But it's not quite so. It doesn't work that way. If it wasn't for Peter, I wouldn't have had the career I I have had. But it wasn't um, uh, the expectations or the the fantasy of expectations that you have at the time. In in my my innocence or my ignorance at the time of the industry, because I uh, hadn't been in the film industry very long. I was, I'd done theatre and and some television. Um, you know, uh, kind of was a quite a wake up call. It's not as easy as, uh, as you know one might hope or think. It must have been a little bit of a letdown then to to go from being that lead to having a little bit of difficulty afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was. But you know, you you you, you plot on. Then I and I've been 
uh, really lucky because I've worked with some really notable film directors. I worked with Bruce Beresford after that and Jim Sharman and Phil Noyce, you know, and um, uh, Donald Crombie, uh, quite a number of good, good, good directors. And then over here, I, I, I moved to America in, in um, well, I was in London and I, um, Richard Lester asked me to do a bit on, on Superman three, which took me to Canada. And from there, I came to LA in 1980 and, um, I worked in theater with, um, uh, some friends of mine that had come out of Carnegie Mellon. And then I, um, Phil Alden Robinson saw me in a play and asked me to be in a, um, an episode of the George Burns Comedy Week. It was a show that was being done at the time back in the early 80s. And that got me my SAG card. And, um, and then from there, it just started to, you know, build up. You were in one that is pretty unusual just you know the the pedigree of the film i'm always fascinated by movies that end up being credited to alan smithy what was your experience on let's get harry like um it was i i met with uh uh stuart rosenberg i'd i'd seen a uh i'd seen a film that he made uh, i was in australia i saw a film called brubaker that he made with um with um um uh, Robert Redford, a prison film, and I thought that was brilliant. I really, really liked it. When I heard that I was going to audition for him over here, um, for uh, I was, you know, I was going to do anything, you know, to work with the man. So, um, so I got the job, and I went to to um, uh, I went to we shot it in um, in Chicago, and it was the middle of winter. It was bloody cold, but um, I had a good experience with Stuart. I I really did. Um, I really enjoyed working with him. I was only there a week um, working and doing the the bit that I did. Then I heard uh, later on he wasn't too happy with the with the the edit on the film. So, and uh, I heard he took his name off. It must have been. Was it right around this time that you ended up doing uh, Bill and Ted's? Because wasn't that shelved for a couple of years? Uh, yeah, I I I did uh, you know in '86 I did Bill and Ted. Yeah, uh, I did did some television in the meantime, but then I did Bill and Ted, and um, uh, I um, yeah I, um, that was a great experience. That was a um, a really good experience. Of course, that's where I first saw you was in Bill and Ted's as Napoleon. It was a, a a really good experience, mainly because um, the director. Kind of, I, I I had some ideas at the start because in the original script there was no dialogue for for the historical figures, and uh, while we were doing things, I w- I wanted to say things, and I and he and he said, well, go ahead, you know, whatever comes up. So I'd be on the phone with friends in Montreal and Paris asking how I say this in French and so on, and and, um, and then I just, my instinct took over and I just did some things like, uh, when we were in, uh, in, um, at the bowling alley, I saw where the, uh, the camera was being, um, where the camera was right at the end of the alley and it was getting a shot of me. So I, uh, I decided to slide down the alley with the ball. 
and it worked really well. And then there was that, you know, the whole thing of Napoleon putting his hand in his in his shirt. That's the, which has become a kind of a cliche. I wanted to do that, but I didn't want to do it. Uh, in that way. Um, so it worked out that when I was stomping the floor and going, meow, the meow, the meow, the meow, the meow, I, uh, I hurt my hand and then I put it in my jacket in that form and it worked for me. I got the opportunity to, to, to show that aspect of it and why. <laughs> but I, re- I also realized that when I had the costume on, and it was a duplicate of, of um, Napoleon's costume, that I would, could rest my left hand on the scarab at the, on, the, uh, on my left side, but I, know I had nowhere to put my right hand. So I ended up undoing the button and putting my hand in there. And I think maybe that's what he, he was doing as well. I had a great time because I was let go and we uh, we did some crazy stuff on it, and it was a lot of fun. And I had a real ball with George Carlin, actually. You know, we just did a lot of shtick and messing around during the shooting of that. We do a bit of jamming. I mean, Keanu will pull out his bass guitar and in the, in the trailer and that, and I pull out a guitar and we just jam a little bit too. It was a they were a lot of fun. Alex and, and Keanu. Everyone was uh, really great on that shoot. Yeah, I was a little sad they didn't bring you back for the sequel years later. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I was a bit sad about that too. And uh, I don't know, I, I hear tell they're uh, going to uh, uh, do another one. That's the rumor anyway. I, I think it'll actually happen though. I think, I think it will. But I don't know if... Um, uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be... I don't think... I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it. You know, I'd love to do it do it again um but i don't know if that um um is going to happen and do people still offer to buy you ice cream these days oh yeah people uh, ask me did i eat all that ice cream uh you know and uh, i say you know um well no <laughs> um i could i couldn't have eaten all of it but um uh, you know, and a lot of I, I get like the other day. Um, I went to last well, a couple of weeks ago actually. I went to a, a Dodgers game, and as I was going through the WhatsApp, he said, "Napoleon, good job." And uh, you know, and I get this quite a lot now, especially when I you know, when I come back to America when I'm here, uh, I get it a lot. So um, it's great. You know, it's uh, it's it's always good because. It's uh, it's it's something that I'm I'm proud of, and I think everybody that in in involved in it was great, you know. As as was Stephen Harrick who directed it. He was uh, a joy to work with. Yeah, it all seems crazy to me that that movie almost never saw the light of day. Yeah, right. I I don't know. And then it became it became a cult film, and it's still shown all over the world now. You've been in over 50 feature films and television shows over the years. What are some of your favorites? Well, Bill and Ted and, uh, well, Cars Day Pass will, um, kind of runs first because it was just a joy to work on. And, uh, it was my first opportunity, but, uh, I, um, I, uh, I really worked, uh, uh, well, Bill and Ted, of course, and, uh, the Truman show was, a uh, uh, a lot of fun to work on. Um, because when Peter, uh, I talked with Peter and he, he said, I've got a script that, um, uh, it's not a big part, but uh, I'd like you to read it. 
And uh, I read it, and uh, I ca- immediately called him back. And I said, of course, you know, of course I'll do it. Um, but then uh, a week later, I, I went on the set, and I said, I'm just sitting in a bathtub watching television, right? He said, yeah. And he said, um, and I said, well, could I have my dinner in there? Can I have a phone, magazines, toys? And and he said, yeah, you can have, yeah, absolutely. But you can't have a rubber duck. I said, okay. He said, it's the only thing you can't have is a rubber duck. I said, no worries. But it was great because it, it just just gave my character a level of reality that I you know was really pleased about. But um, Peter's great like that, you know. He'll he'll work with you, and and um, and then he, the beauty is he's the kind of a director that'll that'll you'll have an idea or something, and then he'll say, okay, let's try that, and then he'll take it another step further, and it'll it'll just open up my consciousness to a place that I didn't wasn't even aware of, and I really love that in a director. I always got a little bit of a uh, um, Dalton Trumbo feel from your character in that movie. Oh, did you? I guess it was just that whole idea, that famous picture of him sitting in the bathtub typing. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> I never put that together. But you, you got a point there, yeah. Because I saw the film not long ago, and uh, and he does that. Oh, because he just so concentrated and so um, focused on what he was doing as is the character, you know, with, um, uh, with, with Truman, we actually did another scene, an improvised scene um, that um, didn't make it on, on, on the screen, but it was um, because it was, it was, uh, it was just taking the focus away, but it was really uh, um, uh, an interesting um, thing that, you know, to do that without any dialogue, and have it work. It's good. Well, it's really a testament to your ability to bring across so many emotions without having dialogue. And I, I, I it's become one of the more memorable characters in the film, even though he doesn't say a word. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, been told that, and I, I thank you. I appreciate that. It's good to to always hear hear that, you know, from people that uh, watch the work. Uh, it's just about immersing yourself, I suppose. I don't know. I just, I just get very involved in, in um, the, that reality and I let it take over. What kind of stuff have you been working on these days? Last year I did an episode of uh, Longmire. I was over here, in a, um, uh, which is a, a Netflix show. And I, I could possibly uh, work on that again. But I've just finished, uh, I did a film in Australia called Oddball. It was a true story about um, this chicken farmer. Uh, he, um, he, he, he had, it was, had an organic chicken farm and the foxes were killing his chickens. And um, so he decided to uh, get this, um, go to Italy and get these dogs these, I think they're Mirama dogs or something they're called, something like that. Anyway, he brought two over to, uh, and they were they were protecting um, sheep and goats and, and so on over there. And he brought them to protect his chickens, and they did from the goat uh, from the from the foxes. So they stopped killing them. But they, they had another problem in in that little town. It was uh, there's a small island off the off the coast, and uh, it's where the fairy penguins would come and breed. 
and uh, there would be thousands of coming every year to breed. But the foxes would find their way on when the tide was out, and we were killing them off. And it came there; it got down to about twenty. Uh, and then this this uh, chicken farmer decided to take his do- one of his dogs over to the island and see if he could train it to protect the the the, the fairy penguins, and he did. So uh, the, one of the one of the producers heard about the, the story and uh, and got a writer to write a story about it, and they wrote a story with some drama and some some things happening in it, and. Um, and uh, they shot it, and it worked, and it broke all box office records in America, in Australia. Yeah, I've heard about that. I've heard that it was quite a runaway hit over there, and I can't yeah. wait for it. To, I, I want to see it, but I haven't found it yet. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know what's um, they're going to get a release over here. I'm not sure when, and how, or what kind of release. But uh, I was told before I left there would be. I played the judge in it, so. Um, who was obsessed with riding bikes and the dog would, because the dog kept on screwing up everything in it and uh, he was secluded to the farm. But then the the farmer and his um, granddaughter decided to, you know, go out and uh, take the dog out there anyway. But um, but the dog was a troublemaker in, in the town, so that creates a lot of the comedy that was going on. It's good. Uh, hopefully it does come here. I mean, the, the trailer's... People out here saw the trailers and loved it, so we'll see if that happens. But I uh, just before I left, I finished a film called uh, The Death and Life of Otto Bloom, and it was written and directed by uh, Chris Jones. Um, it's a story about a, a guy that has no memory of the past but only remembers the future. And um, it's uh, a very interesting story and very interesting script, I I couldn't put it down. It's, it was shot in a documentary style. There were four characters, which I was one of, um, that were interviewed. I played an ex-cop who was interviewed with uh, three others, and their stories unfold and, and brings this, this whole character to life. And uh, it's just been um, – I just heard from my agent that it's going to open the – the Melbourne um, uh, Independent Film Festival in at the end of July. It's going to be the film to open it. That'll where that's where it's going to have its world premiere. So it looks like it's um, it's you know it's going to get a good release there and, and hopefully out here as well. It must have been interesting for you to be kind of right there on the cusp of the whole explosion of the Australian film industry. I mean, the the until the early seventies. I mean, there of course there were Australian films made, but really that just really you know you were in the thick of it with uh, the Cars at Eight Paris. Exactly, and you know, and it was great. It was really great back then because the directors were passionate about their ideas and they were allowed to explore them and express them and, 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 and make films um, before, uh, uh, you know, before the, the, the money people started to say, oh, we want to make films like America or we want to make films that are going to make money. They were allowed to, at that time, express their passion and, and, and make interesting stories that normally probably wouldn't be made now, you know? Uh, and but as the as the industry grew, it just it got um, more controlled in a way. It was almost like a mix. I was saying earlier today of like almost exploitation and art house stuff, and you couldn't really tell the line sometimes between the two. 
it's 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 funny that way the 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 the, the low budget independent films like you know uh, like Shine for instance um, they come out out of the blue and they do well and it takes something like that for you know for the for the Australian truth Australian industry to be recognized but when they go when they start making you know like try to make blockbusters or or they make films that they they believe will be commercially viable they don't always work I did want to ask you a little bit about um the night the prowler uh how was that working with Jim Sharman uh it was good Jim um when I was it was I had to make a decision I had to. I, I was offered that and um, and Newsfront at the same time, and because Jim Sharman, who was a a, a very well known theatre director in Australia and very well respected, uh, I you know I'd always wanted to work with him, and there was uh, and it was a Patrick White short story, so I I decided to go with that. But um, the film that did become a success was the other film that I turned down, the film noise film called Newsfront. But um, it was good working with him and, and uh, especially the producer, Tony Buckley. Uh, he was a, a wonderful man. You know, uh, I don't know if the, the film totally worked, but um, the experience was good. Yeah. There's another interesting film I did with, um, with Phil Noyce called Backroads. I don't know if you you saw that it was actually shot in in, uh, in Super 16, and there was a, uh, only a small crew. We were all involved in it. Uh, Russell Boyd uh, was the operator and DP on it, and um, he, uh, he even played a small part. Um, but it was mostly improvised with Bill Hunter and Gary Foley, Zach Martin, uh, Julie McGregor, and myself. And it was a road movie that uh, went across Australia, and we went into Aboriginal reservations or uh, Aboriginal ghettos where where um, white people don't normally go. And there was a lot of stuff that was brought out. You should, if you can get an opportunity to have a look at it, it's uh, it, it's uh, it's one worth watching. It's called Backroads. Yeah, I played Jean Claude, a, a French hitchhiker, on it. <laughs> How often have you played French people? Yeah, too. Was twice. I'm, I'm, Twice I've played French people now, but that was the first time. <laughs> I mean, you've been around for a lot of years. You must have seen a lot of changes in the film industry as you've gone along. I mean, what's it like for you now? I mean, what what, uh, what kind of roles are presenting themselves to you? It's, you know, I, I, mean, I think it, it's much harder for actors now um, because um, you've got to, um, you've got to have something under your arm and you've got you've got to have a good agent, but then you can't get a good agent unless you've got you know um, something under your arm, and you can't get something under your arm until you've got a good agent to get you out there. So um, it's a lot of young actors that are that are doing um, shorts and independent films and 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 um, student films to start to get material to 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 make a reel you know but it's uh, it's i think it's a lot harder for 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 everyone now and then again in some respects because access to actually filming or to taping to videoing is is much more accessible um there's more you can do as you've seen on youtube a lot of people 
people are doing things that are being recognized and noticed. And um, so the way the ability to make things is very much more uh, much it's it's there now, where, where it was a lot more difficult back in in my day. It almost seems like you have to be your own publicity machine a little bit, you know, like yeah, the whole idea of having to be on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and all these things. Like you have to have that presence, or else people aren't going to take you as seriously. That's true. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's like, um, the execs now see how, how many views you've got. I mean, there are actors that are putting down how many views they've got on Facebook and Twitter and all that uh, as part of their resume. And, uh, it's, you know, and because it's going to influence the casting director or the producers. So, um, so it, what happens with just the raw talent, you know, it's, um, it takes, it's, it looks like it's going to, people are going to need more than just talent. They're going to, as you said before, they have to sell themselves. Well, I did see you on Longmire, by the way, I meant to tell you that, and that was great. And I think that show is, uh, it's terrific. And so I was really glad to see you show up there. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's a it's a great show, and I um uh, well, m- my buddy Rob Taylor um is playing Longmire. He's an Australian actor that uh, he's playing Longmire, and he's great. I did a film with him in Australia called um, uh, Coffin Rock, which was uh, a thriller made back then or made about five years ago, and uh, it's a pity it didn't see that you know it was put out in the sticks when it was released. It was never given her a real chance. But uh, the director and writer of that, Ruben Gla- Rupert Glasson, is, um, I, I, I feel, a very talented and gifted uh, writer-director, but uh, it's not easy to, to get them out there now. Yeah, it seems like there's more movies than ever, but still having the ability to see them is, is the problem. Yeah. It's amazing. You must have to look at so many you know, there's so much to see. I wanted to ask you about uh, Incident at Raven's Gate. Oh, my, my good buddy. I've known since, oh, he's one of my oldest friends, Mark Rosenberg. He wrote and produced it. Um, it's, um, it's uh, yeah, it was a, a thriller that was made back oh, a while ago. I was living in America at the time. And he called me and told me about it, and they flew me back to do it. It was good. Uh, I had a I had a good experience with 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 Rolf and the film. It's uh, he he kind of lets you go. He uh, you know he just um, he, he lets you go and do and, and do what you're doing. And then if if it's if it's a, away from where where his vision is, you know, you talk about it, and then you you get online. But then there was. Uh, it was pretty. It was kind of easy work uh, working with him on that because there was no no pressure at all. He doesn't. Uh, he kind of blends into the atmosphere of what's going on. He's, he's an easy director to work with. When I think of, of great Australian directors, you've worked with pretty much all of them that I can think of. Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of them. It, it saddened me a little that a lot of those directors. From back at, in those time, at that time, are finding it very hard to get films up in Australia now. It's uh, very difficult because they're, uh, 
I don't, I don't know what the situation is or how it's working, but they're, they're finding it difficult to um, get projects that they feel passionate about up, you know? Is it a problem that the U.S. is still such a major industry? Are we exporting too many things to Australia and there's not think, enough room? You know, I think there may be, that, that may be part of the reason. I remember that when uh, back when um, uh, Coffin Rock was being um, distributed, there were there was a certain amount of American films that had to be shown in the cinemas in Australia. So then there was a problem about making room for Australian films or some Australian films. It depends on the deal that's made with the distribution companies, you know, and uh, um, when the film is being made or beforehand. Um, you've, there, there's so many things that are involved and so many aspects to uh, releasing a film and selling a film. So with a new idea, like with a lot of independent films, they'll get the money and make the film, and then they'll try, and then they've got to go to, go to work to sell it. But uh, a lot of films, the other higher budget films, have already got that in place. It's got to be difficult to be almost squeezed out of your own film market. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. How, you know, um, I don't know the situation right now because I'm here. But uh, Oddball got it. It was. Hoyts was part of Oddball's um, uh, release. They all already had that in place when they were um, distri- when they were shooting the film, so they automatically distributed. So, um, but I don't know about an American distributor or what's happening there with that, and with a lot of Australian films. Well, I hope it gets a good distribution deal here in the states, and that we can all see it pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I, I understand that it um, the, to have a, f- a film released in America, there's a lot of money up front because there's publicity and it, it, it takes, you know, um, millions of dollars just to get it to the screen once it's being shot. So um, it's uh, in the hands of a lot of different uh, well, it's in the hands of a lot of different people now and, and different titles and so on but there's some really amazing uh, films coming out and uh, and the quality of television now is so high it, it, that's really great as well because it's become really um, really accessible to a lot of people yeah, it seems like that's where at least with directors and writers that seems where most people are headed these days it seems yeah. like that does offer you the freedom and to can tell larger stories and for longer times. It's it's good. It's a good thing because um well, especially with cable stations and, 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 and Netflix and, and all these uh and Amazon, they're all taking chances and doing things that normally the the networks wouldn't take the chance to do, you know, which is great. Well, I'm also really looking forward to the death and life of Otto Bloom. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, so am I. Um, um, hopefully I'll be back there at the end of June for the opening. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that because I was very taken by the script and by the director, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. But um, if, it's, um, if it's already um, you know, received this kind of praise, I think it's going to do well. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been wonderful. You're very welcome. I really uh, I, I enjoyed it myself, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.
born in New Zealand. When did you make the move to Australia? Uh, 1966. I grew up in New Zealand. Our family of winemakers, actually. Um, I studied horticulture. Then I decided to leave. And I was actually on my way around the world. And I ended up in Melbourne. And I didn't really leave. So I left in 1966. And then just, I was a bit wayward then. And somehow I found myself studying art in, at, uh, in Melbourne uh, at an art school. Through that, I got involved with a group of people that were actors, writers, etc., that were primarily interested in, in writing this, or creating Australian drama. And at that time, there was very little Australian drama in Australia. And I started helping with set designs and posters, etc. And then somehow or other, I got handed a script and asked if I would play a role. And my roles got bigger and my work on sets, etc., became less focused, and I left the art school and became an actor. It almost sounds like you kind of fell into this. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I never looked for it. It, it sort of found me almost. Now, had you played Stork in the play before you played it in the That's movie? That's right. The playwright, David Williamson, had written a couple of short short plays, and we found them and put them on. They were little, like, 15-minute pieces of dialogue, really. And then from that, he wrote a play called The Coming of Stork, and then that became a film. And that was sort of the beginning of my film career. Yeah, from what I understand, that was a pretty big hit. Uh, it was a big hit in Australia. Sort of had a, a rather offbeat sense of humour to it. It was made for virtually nothing. It was made for something like um, $25,000 at the time. We shot it in a, less than a month with nothing. In fact, uh, it was shot on 16mm uh, film and uh, the cost to blow it up to 35 mil was more than the budget of the film. And it uh, became a big hit, yeah. And it sort of helped me a lot, and um, and that and that led me to be doing this. It's funny. I noticed it's uh, in America. It's called the Cars That Eat People, wasn't it? Uh, isn't it? Uh, is it still known as the Cars That Eat People? No, fortunately, that version, that kind of ramshackle, Roger, Roger yeah, Corman, yeah, yeah, that has uh, luckily gone the way of the, of the dodo. It's actually hard to find that version now, and finding oh, okay. the the real version is the easier one, which is great. Oh, okay. The first time I saw it, it didn't have that kind of almost commercial type opening. And yeah, it just was that uh, kind of uh, boulderized version. Right, right. Mm, mm. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. How did you um, end up working with Peter Weir on the Cars of Eight Paris? Basically, what had occurred that um, this theater company that I'd worked in, um, we, we, it was a, a lot of filmmakers, etc. And I came and went from that organization, the Australian Performing Group, it was known as. After Stork, I sort of had a bit of popularity and I went to Sydney to begin a television series called A Certain Women, which was a, focused on... Uh, women's lives. It was the, the beginning of feminism, etc. And so that that series interested me. And while I was in Sydney, I met Peter Weir. And at that time, it sort of coincided with him wanting to make um, the Cars of Day Paris. We had a meeting, and he sort of said, "I'd I'd love to use you. You know, there's a, a part in it for you." And but the problem was, I was doing this uh, television series, The Certain Woman. So with the cooperation of the television company, production company, I got a Friday and a Saturday off. So he kind of used me whenever he, whenever I could arrive on set, basically. Uh, and I think that sort of also may have had more to do with the fact that the character I played in The Cars That Ate Paris is a sort of a fringe dweller. 
And so it allowed me to sort of come and go. Um, and I just I recall that after a day's filming here on a Thursday night, I would go out to the um, airport here and I'd be flown out by a little two-seater plane out to uh, Bathurst and we'd begin that next morning. We'd spend the, the, the two days that I had there with uh, working on set with um, what he could use of, with me. The character, I don't know, it sort of evolved. There was an enormous amount of talking. Uh, the thing about uh, Peter Weir is uh, at that time he had a great sense of humour. It was a very black sense of humour. So even though it's sort of people regard it as a horror movie, and I guess it is because it's pretty bloodthirsty. This, amidst all this, there's a kind of a an offbeat, almost surreal aspect of reality and the way that the town is portrayed and the characters are portrayed. My character, you know, as we know, is sort of he's a bit. He has a bit of a, how can I put it um, delicately, he has a bit of a mental problem and he's a bit deficient. A little, well, he's not, he's just a highly eccentric, I regarded him. I sort of describe it as a, a kind of a, a broken person in a way. Um, and he's just, as I said, he was more of a fringe dweller, which is interesting because, in fact, the whole town is almost like a town of fringe dwellers in the sense that the real world is out there and there's some sort of order. But within the town, there's a, ostensibly there's order, but beneath it there's there's not there are there's a normalcy uh, in the town the characters are kind of normal but beneath this normalcy there's a dark undercurrent and um i i often felt sometimes the offbeat humor was sort of uh, almost like an undercurrent even though people sometimes might not see the humor it's a that time it was an offbeat Australian kind of humour, I guess. But we weren't deliberately playing humour. Um, we were playing very real characters, and it was a really real situation. And therefore, that allowed us to create the, you know, the the horror and uh, and to um, accentuate the dramatic impact that the film would have. You're going to talk about what Peter Weir was up to at with that. Peter was really uh, interesting at the time because we often would shoot the script. And then we would sort of extemporize from it. And he, he, he loved actors. And I think he still does. It's obvious that the, the way he casts films these days, um, that he loves performance. He loves giving actors a kind of a, a reality. So he, there's a, often a lot of discussion about, about, um, about the world in which the characters will live. Once you're on his wavelength, once you understand where he's going, uh, he's really often open to contributions, etc., and he'll channel those contributions. Of course, at that time, he was always willing to try things, and God knows how much footage he would have ended up with before he started editing it and putting it together. But I just recall trying things. We have to bear in mind that this is very early in Peter's career, and he'd only made a kind of a or Homesdale, which was before this, which was a relatively kind of full-length film, but it was one shot on weekends, I believe, and bit with bits and pieces of film, very low budget. Although I think he had you know, very little money then, and this was pretty low. But he liked watching actors act at that time, and I think in a way, the Cars at Eight Paris was Peter was obviously learning at that time too. Uh, learning an enormous amount because from then on, his films just, um, I think the quality of his films, it's quite obvious that uh, the quality was you know, increased enormously. I hasten to say that 
that I, I think in a way there's a quality of the, you know, there's a great quality in the cars of eight Paris. I think it, bearing in mind the limitations that he had in terms of budget, the availability of some of those other actors as well. But as I said, I was only available a few days a week occasionally. And so he, he, with the limitations that he had, it was like he was trying stuff. And I think you can see it in the film, as I said, it hovers between, you know, that of a dark horror, rather, rather ugly horror movie and at times rather a bizarre sense of humor. It's interesting. You have one of the most indelible images in that film of your character with those Jaguar uh, hood ornaments. Just, <laughs> I, I always go back to that image in my mind when I think of the film. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was sort of not planned in a way. Um, I think we were trying to sort of, it was one of those things where you think, well, how can we express this character? You know, how can we show something about this? You know, what is it that I think most actors will sort of talk about, you know, what is it that's important to the character? And that scene, I always regard that scene as important to me uh, or to that character where, you know, he shows those Jaguar icons. And I think the other scene is where the car comes into the, garage and people start to descend on it and cannibalize it and and uh, I'm pushed sort of pushed to the side by the others because I want to have a have a have a have my I want to I want to go in for my bit of flesh as we say the, anyway and for my bit of the car as well and that's why I always thought that sort of he's a forager but he obviously liked shiny things and the Jaguar icons were really I thought it was an impact yeah uh, and you know, especially when you know what's going to, what's happening to those, you know, those cars. As uh, obviously, in a way, there, there's a lot of dead people associated with those. It's almost like carrion. You know, it's um, it's interesting too that the idea of killing people to him, he wasn't psychotic. Well, I suppose he was in a way, but um, it's just that he didn't. It was all the same to him. Um, the life life was quite simple, if you know what I mean. That that's it's just what you do to get what you want. I guess he was psychotic in a way, but he was a simple man. See, I, I, I must confess that I was learning myself too. My only film experience before that, I hadn't, I wasn't a trained actor. My only, I'd, I'd worked on stage for quite a few years before that, but I'd only made one film before that, and that was um, The Coming of Stork, which you know, likely w- was successful, but it was still playing the character that I had played on on, on stage, but. This film was where you were going into something quite surreal and the character was quite surreal and you had to find a, a reality for him and Peter sort of encouraged you to go into those bizarre areas and sometimes you thought, oh, this is silly, but then he said, no, 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 I, I actually, give me a bit more. I want more of that. And then you realise that, uh, how can I describe it? It's like jumping into ice-cold water that you, you're not quite sure, you know, you're a bit frightened, you're a bit a bit sort of, oh, I don't know if I should go here. And then you do it and you think, wow, that feels, mm, that's bracing. And it's almost like that, that you, that, that once you find that character, and to be honest, that sort of experience and working with that and seeing it too later, it probably subconsciously um, gave me the confidence to play the character that I did in Mad Max 2 and Road Warrior. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it, there's a real almost fetishization of automobiles in the Cars of Eight Paris, and that really seems to play into what was happening in Mad Max 2. Was that just 
kind of coincidental or was there kind of a car culture in Australia? Is it because of things being so spread out, does the car become more important for Australians? No, uh, that's interesting because uh, and it's ironic too because I don't think cars were not a, not such a preoccupation in Australia with people as, as, as they appear to be on the on film. Um, not not at all. You know what? I just want to go back to a Cars Today Paris again. That uh, even though it says it's it's called the Cars Today Paris, right? And Paris is a town, and it's a town in in, in Australia, and Australia, like America, being a you know a, a sort of a post-colonial nation. Of course, there are there are towns with 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 names of you know all sorts of. There are, there are lots of English names of towns here. You know, we can we can find with sources like that, etc. And likewise, there are some. I don't think there's a Paris in Australia, but there are some uh, towns with French names. But all I'm saying is that I think that was a name that Peter just popped out of out of his head. But the reason why I'm prefacing, there was an influence in Australia. We were really influenced influenced by. I think filmmakers were influenced by a new, a French New Wave cinema. And, and and I often wonder if that's why he called it Paris. I don't know if he did or not. But the the, the films of uh, Goddard and Truffaut and Rene and a, a lot of those people were really kind of uh, we saw a lot of those and we were quite, I thought we were sort of influenced by them. Uh, I, and I think one of the reasons why we were influenced by them because we had to make films on a very low budget and the French did likewise. And I think that's where we sort of. We, I know some of some of the filmmakers in Australia would observe the filmmaking techniques that, that they would use, the way that they use the camera, etc. And you know that that break a lot of camera rules often. But I'm sure that whether or not that's the reason why he called it Paris, I don't know. But but I know that in a way you can see that in some of Peter's other films that there is almost a there's a little bit of an influence. He's certainly influenced by American filmmaking and British filmmaking, etc. But I can see it also an influence by the new wave French cinema. And I think that's also can be seen in some of the Mad Max films as well. I mean, George Miller, I think, is would, would agree that he's also enormously influenced by uh, American filmmaking. But, you know, even, I mean, we all used to talk a bit about you know, Roger Corman and people like that, but and it's funny that we were often attracted to th- those low-budget filmmakers as well to see how they made films and how you could tell a story with with not a lot of technique, a lot a lot of uh, technical um, technical assistance. Yeah, I was curious when it comes to the these kind of um, I don't want to say early days of Australian cinema, but it was just this kind of renaissance in the seventies when it came to Australian cinema, and you were kind of right there at the forefront with a lot of these films. Was there an excitement that came with that, that now suddenly it feels like Australia is part of the world stage when it comes to film? Yeah, it's funny, you know, I think we were pretty blasé about it. It's funny, there's a thing about, in Australia, uh, it's sort of not not good to blow your own trumpet, if you know what I mean. And and if if you've been successful, you, uh, humility is sort of appreciated, <laughs> which is kind of um, yeah, it is. That's the way it is. You know, you you don't you, uh, as someone said, you'd never get up yourself a bit, mate. You know, you're just um, tall poppy. Do you know what I mean by the tall poppy syndrome? 
that, that you know, if you if you just get too you know too big, you, you just get might just get knocked down. So just don't you know don't blow your own trumpet too much. And but at the same time, everyone was sort of there was no sort of hierarchy or anything. There's no um, everyone was quite accessible and chatty with one. Another. It was like a little group, but. Um, there was a, certainly an excitement, right? There was certainly an excitement because every every film that was coming out at that stage was like a new eye on Australia. And so they were looked at really enthusiastically and everyone was, there was no comp- competition in the sense that everyone was helped. We helped everyone out, if you know what I mean. It was, um, most of those films, as I said, was, even after that were still being made with very little money. And so they were, you know, they were always looking at ways of... Um, getting more up on screen for your bucks kind of thing. So money was tended not to be wasted, but we were telling our stories and this was, and so the public were really excited because these were, this was us up on screen. And normally in general, the films that were coming out in those seventies were, were every film had a new eye on it uh, from a new point of view because there was so, you know, because it was the first time we were telling our stories. And so there was that kind of excitement. I must admit, Australians are pretty critical, too, of films. But they don't... The Casa de Paris was celebrated quite a bit in, in Australia, but at the same time, it was criticised, too. Some people, you know, thought that that, that wasn't a good good look at Australia, you know, that we, that we should... There's a, you know, there was a clichéd look at the Australian culture that we should really be celebrating, but, but we, we tended to look away from the cliche, I think. And I think that's why we got films like Casa de Paris and films like, you know, like the Mad Max films. And, and there were a lot of others. Um, the Last Wave, you know, I'm just thinking a lot of the films that Peter was doing at that time is deliberately sort of away from that style. Uh, the Picnic and Hanging Rock, which is a classic example of the idea of a sort of the boisterous sort of chauvinistic male and that sort of rough look that, that that I think things like Mad Max later on and but but Casa de Paris sort of had he, he it certainly uh, changed when he made Picnic Hanging Rock which was quite a contrast but I think he deliberately looked at that contrast and in a way that's Peter's view of storytelling at that time kind of there's a consistency there in a way last wave picnic hanging rock and and you know even the but the earlier film cars at eight paris which you're familiar with it there's a kind of a normalcy in the world every things are normal but beneath it there's something else that's going on one of the more unusual films that at least to me that you were in that was happening at this time was 20th century oz what was that experience <laughs> oh, like for you god i didn't i didn't know that got that far um i didn't well i gotta confess i didn't enjoy it shooting that film at all, mainly because the, the director, filmmaker, he, Chris Lafayne, hadn't, it was his first film. I think, I think at that time, as I said, that was another first, someone else's first. You know, you're always, in those days, you were working with someone who was their first feature film. And so everyone, everyone was learning, and so was Chris. And Chris had written the script, and uh, there was there were elements in the script that I just wasn't happy with that I wanted to change. And essentially, I just wanted to make the, lang- the 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 dialogue a little bit more natural at times. And because um, I'd spent a lot of time around kind of people like the person I was playing, I just sort of wanted to expand. And and I think he was a little kind of uh, insecure about his what he was doing, and he I think he felt he didn't want 
he didn't he wanted to keep control over everything and so I couldn't even change a syllable at times and and so I've just felt really constrained and so I really at times didn't enjoy it at all but um but I understand once again that was such a wacky film that that ended up you know that sort of had something going for it yeah he had a, he had a lot of experience I think he still does but uh he had a lot of experience in making uh, rock clips at the time, and that was his background. And he had a musical background. Well, and Ross Wilson is still around. The fellow that wrote, wrote the music, he's still around. He 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 was he's an excellent um, songwriter, actually. But anyway, that's another story. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your role in The Road Warrior or, or Mad Max Two, and how you kind of came to that? Oh, I don't really know how I was um, cast in that. In the sense that um, I just got a call. I think he'd been casting for quite a while, and um, I know he'd been casting, looking for the other roles. I don't know. And it was l- uh, one afternoon, late, and uh, my agent rang and said, look, uh, get yourself over to casting agent, blah, blah, uh, because George Miller would like to talk to you about a film. And I said, yeah, he said, and you've got an appointment, got to be there. At, I don't know, it was late in the day. So I got myself over there and arrived and he said, oh, look, here's a, here's a script here. And it was sort of almost like Cole Reed. And, but basically I said, look, can I, I recall I just I went away for about an hour or so to see if I could learn the lines because other people were um, going in for roles. And, um, and so I came back and I think I was the last person that day. And um, we, I just, just did my audition and I think I sort of, because it was such a cold read, I, I, I actually put the script down and sort of improvised some of it too a bit. And we did a couple of scenes. He's a lovely guy. And I, I, I sort of knew George. We'd met before then. So we were familiar with one another. But I had no idea. I, at that stage, I hadn't seen the first Mad Max. So I wasn't quite aware of, once again, you know, this was sort of a surreal kind of scene I was playing here. And to, to under, you know, I didn't really understand much about the film at all. But I just was playing this character and this situation, and I was so it was pretty spontaneous what I was doing, and went away, didn't hear anything for quite a while, and I thought, oh well, I have, haven't got that one. Then a phone call came, and uh, uh, once again from my agent, and uh, George would like you to go over tomorrow, or I've forgotten where it was, but and watch a couple of movies he's got with Mal, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so uh, we went and saw two films that are really interesting because they, you can see the impact that they had on Mad Max 2, I think. And that was one with Shane with Alan Ladd. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's one of the great iconic films. And there's a lot of Shane and the Road Warrior, I think. And Yojimbo uh, by Kurosawa, which, is a fo- which uh, became A Fistful of Dollars. Uh, that's where um, uh, the only sort of ripped off um, Yojimbo, and it's it's more if you can if you if you see that movie, it's identical to A Fistful of Dollars. Really. And um, so we saw those two films. So basically, they're about this loner in a town. You know, you've got the same similar situations in Shane and Yojimbo. And we had a chat, you know, talked about it, and I thought, well. I still didn't know if I had the part, but um, it looked like we were getting closer and we seemed to all get on. We had a great chat after it. And I went home and then I get a phone call about a few days later saying, oh, look, would you go down to, to be measured up for your costume? <laughs> so, I thought I, so I had the role. But working with George was just magic. George is a genius. 
and and I use that word with great care. Um, I, I don't use that word often, but um, George is, is is certainly a genius in terms of and creativity. And he had that film in his head, and it was just brilliant. And I was always secure. Re- I was always really secure working with George. If George said, "Right, you know that's good, uh, uh, you know that's right. We've got that," or "Or uh, this is what I want," and and I would. You know, we'd do a couple of takes, etc. And okay, I've got that. He just reassured you, and he also encouraged. If you if he needed more from your, he needed you to go further. You were always felt secure uh, in what you were doing. He always made you feel secure in creating a great world for you. I think I think in Mad Max too, and all I think most of the films that George would have made, I I have a feeling that he makes the actor really secure in the world that they're in. He, make, he, he sort of fills it out for them, even though so many of those films, the Mad Max films, are quite surreal and out of this world. There's a reality for everyone that's within that story, and and that's what makes you feel really great. And but he also encourages you to use your own imagination, which you know becomes such a, a, a beautiful collaborative time. I have two kind of nerdy questions for you about Mad Max. Did you ever give your character a name? I'm just trying to remember because I think we all we sometimes we sometimes joked about a name, and I'm just trying to remember what they were. But I, I've forgotten what they were. But um, they were always very ordinary names, like Frank or Ray. No, no, no. We never had a name. I didn't. We felt it was best to. Sometimes I often wondered what he was before that. You know, if, if in the real world after the. You know, the, the sort of shit it hit the fan, and and you know, people were living off the land like they were. You know, what what had he been in the real world? And I often feel he was a kind of like a uh, a very bad used car salesman or something like that, because I think he was he was sort of not so much immoral but amoral. I loved playing that character, and I just um just so grateful to George and doing that, and you know we've. We're still very friendly, but in the sense that, um, as I said, that someone gives you a role in which you can travel, and I, boy, you know, could I travel in that? And I just, I just enjoyed every day on the set with that, it, never quite knowing where I was going to go. You know, you had your lines down, etc. But often, you know, you, you were also there were times when he would just, you know, if he had enough time, he would. Just, how can I put it? You could just add something to it. But but he was just wonderful. I loved doing that, and I must confess right away that I had no no inkling of what an impact that character would have at the time. I was just a cog in a wheel of the, of that story at that time, and I was just doing what I could do. I didn't realise that my character would have would have have the impact that he had. Um, would would um, I didn't realise he was so integral to that plot. Uh, it was funny that it was only when I went in to do the ADR to put my, you know, to put the extra voice down, etc., from those, uh, and I saw the rough cut, and then I realised, my God, you know, it's, uh, and and I I hadn't been there uh, for some of those um, uh, stunts that they had done, and and uh, when I first saw it, I was just blown away, you know. Then this, I'm talking about the rough cut. This is a black and white print with with no. You know, no great dissolves or anything like that. It was very rough. But, oh, just when I first saw that, I was just so knocked out. I, I, that's a vivid memory. That just, that memory of 
in that um, recording studio and seeing that rough cut just stands out just brilliantly. I often wonder whatever happened to that rough cut because sometimes I think it'd be really interesting to see that one again. I mean, the film itself is fantastic, but it's funny when you in this in the um, journey of making a film when you see various versions of a film before it, you know, it's released, you can see the initial cuts, etc. And it's fascinating to see the journey that a, um, a story makes to end up on the screen in front of an audience. And it was uh, wonderful to to see that. Uh, and I think it was just great that George is um, actually a very gentle man. He's a, well, he was once a do- he was a doctor, and he still is, I suppose. But this gentle man to be sort of you know responsible for this mayhem is just so incongruous in a way. But but once you get to know him, and the way he, when he talks to you about storytelling, etc., you know that that is him. That's that's him. He's um. He, uh, and, and what's interesting about George also is uh, it's through George that I became really aware of uh, Joseph Campbell, and it's interesting that you know in a way you can see the influence of Joseph Campbell. I think in some of George's filmmaking, he, he often talks about Joseph Campbell, who I think I'm sure have you heard of Joseph Campbell? You must have. Oh yeah, the, the hero's journey, the, the yeah. hero with a thousand faces. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and of course, you know, people forget about. Oh no, they don't forget. But but I'm sure many people are aware of the influence that Joseph Campbell has had on people like you know Lucas Spielberg and many other filmmakers these days. Um, and he virtually is a bible for you know the as you say the hero with a thousand faces is one of the great great bibles that I'm sure is. Um, there are many books out there that are well worn. By little filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers. Yeah. My other nerdy question for you was, what is the relationship, or is the relationship between the gyro pilot and Jedediah from Beyond Thunderdome? Ah, oh, I don't think there is one. That's interesting. Uh, I, I'll explain how, how I got. Um, they were making uh, Mad Max Three, and uh, they hadn't contacted me. In fact, I think may, I may have had a conversation some, with someone saying, "Look, I'm, I'm sorry, there's nothing there really. It's another story." And I thought, and I, you know, that's fine. Okay, yeah. I wasn't. Ex- I didn't. I, I have no mortgage on any characters or any you know, on, on the Mad Max uh, stories. But then, sort of, they were about to start filming. I think, or they may have already done some filming. And then they, I got a phone call, and they said, "Look, look, um, basically." There's this character. He flies a plane. He's got a kid and blah, blah, blah. And he described the character. And we've looked around for people to play him, but we keep coming back to you. And we keep thinking of you. It's sort of somehow or other, it's, it's you, you know. And how do you feel about playing it? And I said, oh, of course, I'd love to play it. But, but as I said, it's, it's not the gyro pilot. It's, an, it's another character. This character comes from... And I remember when I, for, for example, when I went in to do the... Um, the costuming for that character, we thought we had to establish him from a completely different point of view. And that's why that character has that, you know, all that white, etc. And, you know, we wanted to get away. In fact, we talked about how we, we didn't want any black on him because the Mad Max is always so black. You know, it's black on black and his costume's black. And so I said, oh, well, let's go for white. And we're going to tattered white. And I don't know if everybody, anybody's noticed, but the kind of apron that he has, in fact, we ended up, we wanted some decoration on him and it comes from a mason 
sash or something. And um, but we, we kind of liked that, you know, because it was with Freemasonry, it's got that mysterious symbolism all over it. Nobody notices it really because it's so brief. But um, what I'm basically saying is that's how we built the character. So basically, no. Uh, it has no real strong reference to the previous character. Not at all. You, uh, of course, were, you know, you, you've just been consistently acting through your years, but I just wanted to throw out a couple more titles at you uh, of roles that I just really enjoyed you in. Uh, one of those was The Year My Voice Broke. I thought that was terrific. Oh, right. Well, actually, John Dygan, who directed that, was with that the Australian Performing Group way back in the 70s. In the year of in 1970, and he he was at Melbourne University at the time and was directing. He was acting too at the same time and writing. And he actually um, directed another film that wasn't all that successful. Was that the Fur Man? No, oh no, no, that wasn't. Oh, that was sort of earlier than that. Um, just trying to remember the uh, Dimbula, it was called. He had directed that, but unfortunately, I think uh, he was sort of under the. There were, there were too many hands involved in that, and he didn't really have full artistic control. And I think that that sort of was one of the reasons that film didn't work. Well, basically, what I'm saying is we knew each other quite well, and we went back away. And to be offered that role, I just thought was wonderful. It was a role, in fact, I thought was really interestingly closer to me. And uh, when he cast me in it, I thought, oh, wow. It's a kind of role, there's uh, not much to it, really. Um, it's just a, you know, I in the railway who wants to be a poet, but it just uh, mirrored everything that I wanted to be at the time. It just goes back to my childhood. Or even the dialogue, everything about that was great. But I loved the film. I thought the film was just beautiful. It's one of my favourite films, I must admit. Manix 2 and that are pretty close together, but it's, it's just a film that I, I've always enjoyed. That was made on a, on a shoestring budget too. When you've got a tight budget... I just, I just was thinking of those early films of Lucas, you know, THX, and the early films of Spielberg, and lots of those days of that early filmmaking where people had very low budgets, didn't have a lot of money to spend, so therefore whatever you were making that had to be up there on the screen, uh, script writing, the script writing had to be, you know, pretty, pretty together, or you had to be working with actors who could deal with those scripts and maybe. Em- you know, embellish them in some way that made them presentable. But, but I just think there was it was made for really exciting films. And to me, um, the year my voice broke is an example of that. And ironically, so I think is um, the Cars of Paris. And I'm I'm hoping, frankly, I'm getting sidetracked here, but I'm hoping that I feel optimistic about filmmaking in, in the future now that it's becoming now that we're on in using digital cameras, etc. We can make films on lower budgets and therefore with these lower budgets there's more control there's they're more um story orientated i don't know if that makes sense especially around character and etc and stuff like that one of the things about digital you know, cgi etc is, is we're going overboard with some um, you know visual stuff now um game of thrones and things like that which i love um i love game of thrones but i just realized that and stuff like inception which is another one it's a lovely film but and I love those films but I just would like to see us starting to make films that are more I don't know if you've seen a, a, a recent um, Australian film Mystery Road directed by a man called Ivan Sen and I just think that's a brilliant film and these are films that are made on very low budgets and often I just think they're, 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 there's a quality about them that I, I just love 
there's a movie that I wrote about that uh, I'm sure probably didn't have a very big budget uh, that you were in called Hercules Returns. Well, that had very little budget. Yeah, in fact, uh, in fact, I think we shot we shot the, that stuff in about a week. I think um, that was chaos. Once again, that's the great thing about low budget filmmaking that when you're constrained by uh, the money that you have in order to tell a story, you sometimes resort to really off-the-wall but inventive and exciting ideas. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of really bad films made for those on those low budgets, but among them, there are gems. There are little diamonds, and I had no notion that that was going to be as successful as it was. The people that... I don't know if they, they had that kind of... if this sort of stuff was done in America, but the people that made that film used to travel the country here in, in, little old, in very old cinemas that play these very obscure, bad, schlock, black-and-white movies that you know, that they'd obviously buy the rights to or somehow you know get to screen for, for no money at all. But then they'd turn the sound off and they would uh, improvise the sound. And that improvisation would entertain everyone, and often they were comedians as well. But, and that's sort of where they got the idea for, for that film, for Hercules Returns. And as you can see... They wrote that. They sort of took all their best gags and popped them in that one, but and then they had then they surrounded that with a kind of a, a reality, which was us. So you've got you know Her- Hercules returns. But when you've got no money to spend, uh, how do you make a how do you make a movie that's going to make money? And that's how you do it. And I just find that ingenious, just as ingenious as, as I said, as a film like some of those really great films that we see today that in which they've spent enormous amounts of money. I was so amazed to see you being in three of the biggest films over 2003 and 2005 between the Matrix sequel, the Lord of the Rings final film, and the final prequel film. But it was just so unfortunate that I couldn't even recognize you in in two of those, but I was so glad to see you show up and and have your presence there. It's funny because... I went to Los Angeles. Oh, it was something about four, four, four years um, after I'd, I'd done um, Mad Max Two: The Road Warrior. I spent six weeks in in Los Angeles, and I got I must you know, I ended I had an agent. Everything was looked okay. I was getting interviews. I was getting auditions, but I just was homesick. And that's when I, I had a, a wife and and a, a young child here in in Sydney. And I guess if I was really ambitious, I could have said, "Damn it, I'll make the I'll make the move and I'll go to America, follow my career there." But I decided I just wanted to come home, and I like Australia. I love being here, and I love living here, and I love I love you know, being with my family. And so I returned, and so the only foreign films I've been in are those that have come to Australia or New Zealand and have been made here. So, ironically, in that very small space of time, I was asked to do. Uh, the, the the mouth of Sauron for for the Lord of the Rings, and that was only a, that was literally a day's work, and I did not know where the heck I was in doing that one. But anyway, we do that one. Then, sort of in a very short while, I get I get the, that last Star Wars film, Star Wars Three, um, um, Revenge of the Sith. Once more, that was only a one day's work, but lo- lots of work with um, prosthetics, etc. In fact, um, I seem to recall. We did very few takes too. I seem to recall only about two takes. And you know, normally, in some of those big budget films, you can get up to anywhere twenty takes, etc. But 
George seemed to be very happy with what we were doing straight off. So I found that really easy to do. And, and then Matrix, which I loved doing. I loved The Matrix. And it's interesting that a lot, you know, so many of these films are so sort of surreal and out of this real world. But somehow or other, I really enjoyed doing them. And I, it, it was easy to fit into the Star Wars film because by then, you know, this is one of the last more recent, well, it's not a recent Star Wars film, but a lot had gone before. So you knew what kind of world you were in. But um, The Matrix, you didn't. And I remember just reading the script literally the day before I found myself on set for the first time and trying to figure out where, you know, what was this world that I was in. But it was brilliant. And I loved working with those two guys, the Wachowski brothers, that were just wonderful. These are real lucky breaks in a way for me in the sense that I'm just happy. to See, I do a lot of stage work here. In fact, I'm about to start work on The Midsummer Night's Dream at Shakespeare, um, a game here with the Sydney Theatre Company. And I've just finished about a couple of months ago working with them. But um, I just love the process of performing. And uh, I love being part of a team in the sense of um, in a cast or whatever, you know, uh, whether or not I've got a main leading role or whether or not I've just got a tiny little role. It's the process of discovering a character that I just love. And I guess in a way, that's one of the reasons I love theatre too, because you know, often we have six weeks rehearsal to do, to explore. And it's that exploration. And likewise, it's the process on set in front of a camera that I just adore. And I must confess, to be really, really honest, there are a lot of films that I haven't seen of mine, and I'm not going to tell you which ones I haven't seen, but in the sense that um, I have seen a lot of them. But what I'm saying is that for me, the exciting thing about being an actor is the process of working with actors, working with directors, and creating magic in front of a screen or in front of an audience on stage. To be honest, I don't think anyone's really happy with what they do. You're always looking for the perfect performance and you never find it. But it's that search that's just a wonderful experience. Well, I have to say you've done pretty good for a guy who just kind of fell into acting back in yeah, the well, late 60s. Um, I, I, I often sit back and say, oh, oh, look, I'm, I've been very lucky. I really have. As I said, it's, it's, not, a big, it's not a big pool here, but I'm, I'm really happy <clears throat> I was, you know, being six foot six, you know, skinny as a rake, not your normal looking person. I thought, you know, how am I going to survive in this? I won't say who it was, but it, it sort of actually encouraged me to move to Sydney. But when I was in Melbourne, I fell on, it was a little hard times there in about 19, in the mid seventies. And um, I went to see the, uh, one of the leading stage directors, hoping I'd get work. In fact, we met socially one night. I remember he said, look, Bruce, I'd love to use you, but you're just, you're just too hard to hide. And I thought, whoa, yeah, well, that's limited me uh, here. Anyway, um, and I, I wasn't getting any work with this person anyway. And, uh, and so I, I moved to, to Sydney and I just fell on my feet. I just, I have, um, I have virtually haven't stopped since I've, you know, since, what was it, 1976 I first came here. So I haven't stopped since then. And I've been very lucky. Well, I, I want to say something that's going to embarrass you now. Because, uh, I have been doing this podcast now for over five years, and 
I've always had that kind of mental list of people that I really want to talk to and really want to interview. And you are one of the people that is always in that top 10 because I've just enjoyed your work for so long. And it's always a pleasure when you show up on screen just you know because there are certain times where i don't even know you're going to be in the film like i'll go to see an i frankenstein and just like holy <laughs> shit it's bruce spence fantastic it oh, just thank you. makes thank everything you. better so i really appreciate the work that you've done over the years and i i really appreciate the time that thank you've taken you. to talk and to me today one of the great things is i'm i'm seven i've just turned 70 and i'm still learning that's the great thing about acting, and that's why I just love it so much, because every time you find yourself in front of a new cast and a new director, in front of a camera, as I said, or in front of an audience, you're still, it's all new again. And that's what's so wonderful about, about being in this industry and, and, and you know, telling those kinds of stories. It's wonderful. We're back and we're talking about the cars that ate Paris. I'm just so sad that this didn't become the hit that it was supposed to be because, yeah, it, it it's one of those movies now that just when I was talking about doing this one, people were like, what? What movie? What is this that you're talking about? And I just wish that it was more well known. Well, the funny thing is you guys have a better release of it than we do. The It's only like I said earlier that it wasn't readily available on VHS pretty much never screens in, in cinemas. And the only DVD out of it was put out about 10 years ago. So it's really early gen, not great quality. And it's on a, it's actually sharing the disc with Peter Weir's other film, The Plumber, and doesn't have any bonus features whatsoever. So you guys at least have a Criterion DVD of it that has bonus features. <laughs> I'm glad at least somebody is recognizing it, but I wish more people would because it just it, it seems to fly under the radar too much. Well, time has been very, very kind to this film. Now we look at it and we see that it came out in this two or three year period uh, where we have Deliverance and we have the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we have Rollerball and Death Race 2000 and 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 a lot of these a lot of these other films and it and it it really does seem to be a very, very vital entry in this incredibly energetic, subversive rethinking of some of these genre motifs. I'm curious, when it comes to Peter Weir, uh, Ben, what are some of the movies that you would consider kind of being representative of him as far as like maybe what was what were his hits in Australia? Uh, he had a pretty good run of hits, actually. Like the because the, the follow up film to Cars of Paris was Picnic and Hanging Rock. Oh, I wouldn't even know how to describe how influential, uh, financially successful, and significant Picnic and Hanging Rock is in Australian culture. It, it it was so widely seen and absorbed that most people you ask would tell you that it's based on a true story that it really happened. It just became part of our culture in a very short amount of time. Um, and it was, you know, for a film that is so esoteric, even more esoteric and surreal and dreamlike than Casa de Paris, it was a huge hit across all ages and groups. 
And that film really put Australian cinema on the map. Um, it went everywhere. It, it's it's made a fortune in England, even more than in Australia, and really gave him the freedom to start exploring interesting other areas. But he, he his follow-up film, The Last Wave, uh, to that was not a very big success in Australia, but was quite a big hit internationally. Probably is most outside of *Picnic Hanging Moss* would be most well remembered for for his Australian films for making *Gallipoli* with Mel Gibson, um, at, which is you know, about the events in Gallipoli uh, in the First World War, where uh, the Australians were sent to Turkey to to fight and were caught up in a very brutal battle where the English were basically just sending them in to be slaughtered for cannon fodder. Yeah, and then the the year of living dangerously um, about the the situation in Indonesia in the sixties was another big hit, and then he moved to America and he, pretty much everything he did in America was hit. We did you know Witness with Harrison Ford, uh, Mosquito Coast. Oh no, sorry, yeah, with Harrison Ford, Mosquito Coast with Harrison Ford. <laughs> if anybody remembers Green Card, which was a big hit at the time, but has now completely disappeared. And, uh, you know, wandered a bit with Fearless with Jeff Bridges and then, of course, you know, came back with the Truman Show and Master and Commander. And that, that's the interesting thing that, like, the even his films, which weren't necessarily hits, still had quite a bit of success. He's probably our most successful filmmaker, to be honest, consistently, um, and both financially and in quality, because even his less interesting films are still interesting. Year of Living Dangerously was a major turning point for Australian films in the U.S. I mean, that uh, not only was it just a hit generally, it was the film that let everyone know that Sigourney Weaver wasn't just Jamie Lee Curtis in outer space. That was a real star-making role for her. Uh, and it was certainly the signal that Mel Gibson was was not just going to be that guy from the road warrior and oh wasn't there another film with that character used that used to be on hbo right you know mad max was discovered in retrospect after the road warrior had had been a hit here and Mm so we're we're just absolutely central not only for the you know for the what we would you know call the australian new wave but but year of living dangerously was such a huge huge film in terms of the careers of both gibson and weaver and and that film was a mega hit in art theaters. I mean, it was handled by a one of the first Australian films to be handled by a major distributor, right? Uh, uh, I think uh, my brilliant MGM career, was UA. right, right. Uh, my brilliant career had been handled by World Northall, which you know did all the Shaw Brothers, you know, uh, martial arts movies for grindhouses, and uh, one of the films, one of the early films, had been handled by analysis releasing who'd done maniac, you know, like these, these were, these were films, but this, these first cycle of Australian films in the U S were notable financial and critical successes, but they were really kind of handled by some of these underbelly distributors. But a uh, year of living dangerously was, was just absolutely huge. And one of the things that I like the most about the film is there's no sense in that film that Weir is giving up his more, subversive and avant-garde and experimental uses of narrative and film style, even though it's a, 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 you know, a love story set against the tumult of this 1965 revolution, that there's all of the elements that make his films endlessly surprising and compelling are all there fully in that, in that film. So I, I agree. He's 
certainly the most important Australian director in terms of the way that cycle of films was received here. And as people have pointed out, uh, unlike uh, John Woo and some other directors who seem to have lost a lot of what made their work distinctive when they moved into Hollywood, and in many respects, uh, uh, Weir's films films became even more sophisticated, uh, especially if we look at films like like Witness or uh, The Truman Show. Well, to me, The Mosquito Coast was one that was not an easy film for a lot of people to watch. People didn't really care for it that much. I don't know if it was that uh, the way that Harrison Ford was playing that character, because it was kind of like the one of the first grumpy Harrison Ford roles that we got. And, I mean, I, I remember really enjoying that movie, but I could see where some people were just kind of turned off because it wasn't the narrative that they were expecting. I was reading um, Letterboxd reviews last night for Mosquito Coast because I've, I've never seen Witness or Mosquito Coast. And you, pretty much exactly what you just said, the vast majority of reviews that I read on Letterboxd were people saying, I didn't like this when I saw it when I was younger because I liked Harrison Ford, the action hero, Harrison Ford, the do-gooder, you know, and this was just completely not at all what I was expecting and it just turned people right off. But the amount of them who had said that they'd come back 10 years later, 20 years later, revisited and gone, holy crap, this is amazing. Ford was tireless there for a while in the 80s of attaching himself to projects that would never, ever have gotten made had he not been part of the package we can certainly thank him for many great, great films of the 1980s. I mean, Blade Runner would never have been made without him. Witness would never have been made without him. And certainly Mosquito Coast, that's probably the farthest out there of all of those films. Well, and I know that uh, Robin Williams had played some more serious roles, but he really, I mean, Dead Poet Society is when he blossomed as being a serious actor. I always forget the Dead Poet Society is Peter Weir. I think because I spent so much of my childhood trying to block that film out. Yeah, it's it's rather an obnoxious film uh, when I think about it now, it, but um, I remember liking it. It came out in 1989. I was 17 at the time, so it was kind of the perfect movie for that year. You know, it was just like, oh, yeah, my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. So, And you wish that you had a teacher that was one-third of what John Keating was, you know, the Robin Williams character was. Okay, let me try to reclaim this film for us here. Let's say that in this somewhat gaseous 124-minute film that's that's – it's a triumph of the human spirit. Okay, okay, just let's just put that to the side. And let's say in that film, there is a great 40-minute Peter Weir film in there. <laughs> and, 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 and there are a couple of bits in there that I think uh, that are among his very, very best work. There's the one scene where he takes the boys out into the hall, and there are all those pictures of the previous classes. And he said, look at them. Just look at them. Ignore the haircuts, ignore the clothes, but look at them. They are you, and and you're going to end up just like them. Do you remember that scene? And then and then you know that's that sort of you know Peter Weir unstuck in time theme. And then there's that subplot near the middle end of the film about the suicidal student who is completely engulfed and overwhelmed and destroyed by the oppressive atmosphere of the school. I mean, and, and that's, that's your Peter Weir, Weir film, right? There's this, there's this nugget of Peter Weirness in the middle of this sort of trial run for Patch Adams that, that it sort of 
uh, uh, engulfed in. But I mean, I, I, I think Dead Poet Society really could use another look as, as part of, uh, of Weir's oeuvre. I'm definitely going to because as I've gone back and revisited the ones I had seen and tried to fill in the gaps on the ones I hadn't, the thing that comes to the fore absolutely is yeah the, how much of an auteur Peter Weir really is, and for me the that the forefront of that is that he is a hundred percent a sociologist. That pretty much every single film he made looked at societies or aspects of societies in microcosm, in macrocosm, and tried to sort of illustrate something of what made them tick. And it wasn't necessarily to always make a point. I think in in Cars at Eight Paris he is trying to make a point. Um, in something like Gallipoli, because the 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 spirit of the the Anzacs, the the Australian soldiers uh, and the New Zealand soldiers who fought in the First World War, um, you know, the, 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 the public holiday that we have and then the Day of Remembrance, all this thing that so underpins our culture and this, this myth of death and destruction. And in Gallipoli, you know, he makes these amazing associations between sports culture and war culture and sort of really, without being nationalistic, really punctures a lot of the the myths and ideas surrounding it um and you know in something like the the year living dangerously of showing how a culture can can fall apart and then you know in truman show most obviously of creating you know this culture of like of, of a fake world and even something like master and commander which is you know looking at a microcosm of a society that exists on the ship because they're so cut off from everything that it has to be its own little independent kind of nation I would urge uh, anyone who's interested in that aspect of uh, Weir's films to to screen a double feature of Picnic and Hanging Rock and witness some time. I think you can really sort of see exactly what you're talking about in in those two films. You know, one from the one from the the Australian period and one from the the early Hollywood period. Yeah, I'm very eager to because that's it's about the Amish culture, isn't it? Yes, yes. The yeah, so uh, homicide detective goes into an Amish community. Uh, it's yeah. extraordinary. From what I read about Mosquito Coast, it's the same thing. It's come with the 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 Agira Wrath of God kind of thing of the the lone male, the white male going into the wilderness to make civilization. I did have a quote here on where Cars at Eight Paris came from that I thought was pretty fabulous. This is Peter Weir said that. Uh, I was driving through France and I'd been diverted off the road by some roadworks and I thought, why did I follow those directions? Later I was in England and I saw a paper with the headline, Shotgun Shooting in East Cheam, and below in a tiny little paragraph, 15 dead on the M1. And I thought, well, if you're going to kill someone, you kill them in a motor car accident, not a shotgun. I thought that was <laughs> that was pretty great. <laughs> A little insight into his creative process there. <laughs> well, you know, to, to tie it back into Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think you're about to bring up, Mike, the, the old thing about uh, Toby Hooper just saying that he came up with it while standing in the middle of a Walmart or whatever and looking at the chainsaws and thinking how quickly he could get out of there while holding the chainsaw. <laughs> it was actually Neiman Marcus, which is a super expensive department store, and he was waiting in line behind all of these rich people. So so the 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 idea of class revenge that sort of animates the the 
venom in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that, that was kind of present in that moment as well. Oh, absolutely. And and I was thinking earlier that about there's all those Jaguar hood ornaments, but are there really that many Jaguars driving through the tiny little town? And that feels like a very specific same kind of uh, class attack. Yeah, definitely. Because I'm, I'm not sure you know, if it's one of those misperceptions or not. But when I hear of a Jaguar car, you know, I hear the British person who is doing the voiceover on the commercial and I hear luxury and I hear, you know, not quite a Bentley or a Rolls, but definitely something that uh, represents wealth. So, uh, yeah, I'm very surprised at just how many Jaguars are coming through Paris. The real Paris, maybe, but Paris, Australia? Not quite sure. It's easy to get turned around on a back road, end up in the wrong country. Well, especially when they're so close geographically. <laughs> I, I spent some time living in Vienna in Austria, and one of their main uh, sort of tourist items that you can buy is a Australian street sign uh, with a kangaroo on it, and it says no kangaroos in Austria. Because apparently all the Americans turn up in Austria and go, where are the kangaroos? That's the first line in Dumb and Dumber. That's a lovely accent you have. New Jersey? Austria. Austria! <laughs> well then, <laughs> good day, mate. <laughs> Let's put another shrimp on the barbie. Uh, I did, I, when, I, when I lived there, I had, someone actually asked me, do Australians know there aren't kangaroos in Austria? Yes, we have this thing called an education system in Australia. You should put that on a t-shirt and sell it on your YouTube channel. Uh, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. The new American hero. Go! John Stamos is Stargrove. Stargrove! Vanity is Donja. Gene Simmons is Ragnar. Yeah! Never too young to die. Rated R. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Never Too Young to Die, which is kicking off 80s month. Why 80s month in March? Why not? Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Kevin. So, Kevin, what has been keeping you busy lately, sir? Well, I'm involved in a number of things. Uh, recently, I recorded an interview with uh, legendary adult film actress Annette Haven that's going to be featured on Vinegar Syndrome's upcoming DVD release of China Girl, which was her breakout film from 1975. Uh, I'm also uh, continuing work on my two blogs, which I think we can link to in the show notes, uh, one of which is called The Crawling Eye, which is international cult media, and then a more 18 and over blog on gender and sexuality in the media called Not and Gender. So I've been working on those. And various uh, rough drafts of chapters for my upcoming book are going to be appearing on each of those blogs. And the tentative title of the book is From Beavis and Butthead to Tea Party Nation, Dumb White Guy Politics and Culture in America. And I've been working on this book for about 10 years, but the last chapter keeps changing and getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> yeah, just imagine how many dumb white guys are going to be after Betsy DeVos gets her hands on the education system. Well, there's a, they're, they're a voting block that, that seem to be, you know, demographic trends seem to be against them. But I think if we can put her in charge of the schools, we might be able to raise a whole new crop. 
You can thank Michigan for her. Oh, no, it's, it's fine, guys, because there's that other Republican who just put through that bill to abolish the Department of Education, which would put her out of a job. So you'll be fine. So how about you, Ben? When you're not making YouTube videos, what are you up to? <laughs> oh, these days I'm working night shift constantly and getting nothing done. I wish I was writing all these things. Uh, I did help a friend make a feature film last year, which was interesting, which I was head of production slash occasional first AD slash everything else under the sun on. Uh, that was a little film called Trench, which should be appearing into the world sometime in the next year. And you can find more information on that at www.trenchfilmnoir.com. Uh, it's a, about a, a – we shot a 4.3 black and white, and it's about a – a female uh, online blogger who has a crazy stalker who's trying to drive her crazy and she hires a failed comedian to try and figure out who it is. And it was heaps of fun to make and I hope people enjoy it when they get to see it. Other than that, I just complain a lot on Twitter. You can find me on Dissolved Pet on Twitter and Instagram and keep an eye on those because one day I will actually get off my ass and start writing again. Dissolved Pet has to be one of my favorite Twitter handles. Yeah, it's pretty great. When I came up for it and I was ultra-vistering it way back in the day, it was just me and some Mexican dog food company. <laughs> I really need to get a different uh, email address because every time I have to tell someone professionally, I get a really strange look. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. We'll have links to where you can find out more about Kevin and Ben's stuff. And you'll also find links there to iTunes where you can rate and review the show. Uh, every rating and review definitely helps. And also there's a link there to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show so that you can help the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.